Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visubview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And we've had some great shows lately. Richard B. Spence was back to talk about Operation Trust with me. I had William Ramsey on to go into the Order of the Nine Angles. We've got a great show coming up with N.J. Benass on all kinds of UFO goodness and also a, tra- or a um, version of the interview I did on Crowdsource the Truth. In the future, I've got such great guests coming up as Eric Davis, the author of Technosis and High Weirdness. So yeah, there's going to be some cool stuff uh, already up in the Patreon section and uh, some very cool stuff uh, to look forward to in the coming weeks and months. All right, for today's show, I've got a trio of repeating guests as well as a newbie. As to the noob, he is a Toronto, Ontario-based researcher who has been studying mind control, psychological warfare, and related subjects for more than a decade. He is Thomas Martel. Uh, Myrtle, sorry. Thomas, thanks so much for dropping by today, sir. Uh, that's okay, and I appreciate you having me on. All right. Okay, on to the repeaters. The first one up for consideration is the founder of the Coalition Against Voter Disenfranchisement and Election Fraud. He is also the curator of its excellent website, cavdev.org, and is presently investigating the mystery of JonBenet Ramsey's death, Ted Bundy, and the Henry Lee Lucas case. He is George of CavDev. George, thank you so much for dropping by again tonight, sir. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Stephen. It's always great to be on the show. Absolutely, and we love having you here. All right. Also joining us is a researcher and musician presently working on a biography concerning Fair House founder Adam Parfrey. He is also the chief creative force behind the experimental folk slash electronic outfit called Corwin Trails. Folks, I give you guys the great Samuel Van de Var. Sam, thank you so much for dropping by again tonight, sir. Thanks for close. Happy to be here. Uh, we always love having a Van de Var on this show, man. All right. Rounding out this session is the ultimate repeater. He is John Brisson of We've Read the Documents, and also, in this case, the inspiration for tonight's show. John, thank you so much for joining us tonight, sir. Thank you, Recluse. Miss you at the last roundtable, brother. I'm glad to be here. This is a this is our own version of the roundtable. Glad that we can bring it to the farm audience. And uh, I like being called the ultimate repeater. Sounds pretty cool, like an action title or something of an yeah, action yeah. star. So I'll take it, brother. But glad to be here. All right, man. Okay. 
Our topic for today's discussion is the infamous Colonel Michael Aquino or Aquino. We were just uh, disputing the pronunciation, but it is the 21st century. Do as thou willst for pronunciations. All right. Aquino's death was announced in September 2020, but a death certificate has recently revealed that he died via suicide in September 2019. This was one last enigma for a figure who has spent his life surrounded by the shadows. Now, John has already done an excellent account of Aquino's life during a round table when we've read the documents. I'm going to include a link to that discussion in the description below. There, many of the more controversial aspects of Aquino's career were addressed, most notably the Presidio allegations. As such, we are not going to rehash a lot of that for this particular show. Instead, I wanted to use this one to build on some of the lesser known aspects of Aquino's legacy, most notably his role in psychological warfare. Now, while little addressed, Aquino has had a profound influence on various alternative cultures, such as yafology and even the truther community. We're going to cover all that today and so much more. And don't worry, we're even going to tackle some of Aquino's more nefarious activities as well. In fact, that's what we're going to start off with. So, George, I'm going to let you handle this particular section. So let's kick off with the Franklin scandal. What were some of the accusations concerning Aquino that came out of that uh, quagmire? Yeah, most of the allegations linking Aquino to Franklin came through uh, Paul Bonassi, who was one of the many victims in the case. And in contrast to some of the others, like Alicia Owen and Troy Bonner, who were more, you know, sort of normal kids who were drawn into a bad crowd and then became part of, you know, went, went started attending these sex parties, but then, you know, went home to their normal lives afterwards. Paul Bonassi was much more of a uh, full-time, shall we say, member of this network with uh, not a lot of supervision at home and indeed a backstory that he would ultimately come to terms with as he started recovering memories of his abuse through working through his multiple personality disorder that he had really been abused by this pedophile network in Omaha, Nebraska for more or less his entire life, you know, quite by one account starting as uh, the age of like three or so when uh, a babysitter, a babysitter of his had a boyfriend who worked at off at Air Force Base in close to Omaha who sexually molested him. And then from then on, Benassi claimed to have been drawn into this whole uh, mind control operation that was going on at Offit, where he was basically being programmed to be a you know, super spy, uh, a courier of messages, a, a soldier, and also a basically a forced a child prostitute who would be used to compromise public officials being given all of these various roles that he was programmed into. And so it was through Benassi in particular who has a much more broad reaching exposure to the various aspects of the Franklin Ring that you hear a lot of the different aspects about how Aquino fit into the case. And uh, the clues you know, began coming out not too long after Franklin broke. I think the earliest one that can really be documented is that Benassi had written this sort of uh, this weird letter in backwards writing and you know backwards writing has often uh, been identified as a sign of you know sat being involved in satanic cults or being involved with mind control type stuff but basically this backwards writing you know literally written by one of his personalities who only wrote backwards um, 
there was a reference, and this letter was from April of 1991, that talked about witnessing a satanic sacrifice in Nebraska in 1980. And he basically said these, these satanic groups that were doing it were under the purview of the Temple of Set, which of course is Aquino's uh, satanic group. So that was the very first reference you saw to Aquino, albeit indirectly. And then later on, as Benassi began, uh, you know, he, he had a whole civil set of civil lawsuits against his abusers going on throughout the 1990s. He occasionally made statements to the media, uh, well, say the alternative press, and uh, obviously some shady figures in there like the LaRouches, but for whatever it's worth, he was making all these different statements and talking about his mind control programming experience. And it, I should say he was also talking to somewhat more reputable people like Andy Bohm, uh, spelled B-O-E-H-M, who was sort of the an independent journalist out of Los Angeles who previously been working on the RFK assassination. He was actually the one who inspired Tim Tate to make the Conspiracy of Silence documentary in the first place. So there were more credible people that uh, were hearing this information as well, I should just make clear. But, you know, Benassi was talking about all of this, uh, his mind control experiences, and he fingered none other than Michael Aquino as being one of his major programmers that, you know, while he was at off at Air Force Base, that Aquino was basically supervising him and uh, essentially, you know, molding his different personalities through these trauma-based techniques to fulfill various uh, force purposes that he was meant to. And also he described being taken not out of, you know, out of state to other military bases, including the Presidio, where Aquino was stationed for the majority of the 1980s for programming there as well. And uh, incidentally, in his account, more or less made it seem like Aquino was sort of a you know, supervisory figure over Larry King and Craig Spence, who were the most visible ringleaders of the whole Franklin ring. Basically, he said you know, that it was the programming, the mind control programming that came first, and part of his programming was basically made into this, uh, essentially made into someone who sort of a, you know, a sex kitten type of thing, where he was forced to sexually service these adult men for the purposes of human compromise and wasn't he wasn't this linked to monarch or something like that or was that just in john DeCamp's account of this well benassi did use the term monarch uh when it was coming up there are other people like andy bohm who i mentioned doubts that uh benassi actually that monarch was actually used with benassi that it may have just been sort of a cross-contamination type of thing if we of course after gary caridori's death uh in the early days of Franklin, Benassi was handed off to a lot of uh, more unsavory individuals like John DeCamp, Ted Gunderson, the LaRouches, as I mentioned, a lot of people who, although they exposed parts of Franklin also very clearly had an agenda along with them and ties to these far right elements who were pushing these more sensationalized conspiracy type aspects. So Benassi did, he did mention Monarch, but there are, of course, some doubts about whether that was the legitimate name of the program or not. Uh, but in any case, the, his descriptions of the you know, abuse and programming that they suffered are remarkably consistent across you know, with the, what the CIA is known to have done and what the, a lot of other victims have described as well. And I tend to believe that what he described is, in fact, the truth. And you know, despite all the claims to the contrary, Benassi has been a generally remarkably consistent and uh, credible witness in many of his stories over the years about various things and particularly the Johnny Gosh abduction, for example, a lot of Benassi's seemingly implausible tales have been corroborated. So he does have a fair amount of credibility in the stories that he tells, even with you know, little nitpicks like that. Uh, and ultimately, you know, Benassi described you know, that 
his programmers, such as Aquino, basically told him to join in with Larry King's and Craig Spence's group, which was known by the under the name Bodies by God. So basically, he was told by his programmers at Offit to become part of the sexual blackmail network, and that explains his presence there. So Aquino was kind of the boss over top of Larry King and Craig Spence. And further indications of that would come out a bit later in Benassi's civil trial. And, you know, he had sued all these different abusers of his, and most of the charges ended up getting, uh, you know, most of the suits ended up getting dropped. But Larry King, for whatever reason, never contested it. Uh, and so went to a default judgment. There was a hearing over damages. And various people testified at the trial, including, you know, uh, Noreen Gosh, the mother of the victim, Johnny Gosh. Uh, Paul Benassi, Paul Benassi's wife, um, also Rusty Nelson, who was Larry King's personal uh, photographer. And in Rusty Nelson's testimony, there were some very interesting, there was a, a very interesting anecdote that he mentioned about his time with Larry King. He said that at one point, Larry King and him had traveled to Minneapolis to a hotel there, and they ended up meeting a man who Larry King addressed as Colonel. And basically Larry King handed over to the Colonel a suitcase that was full of cash and bearer bonds that was earmarked for the Contra, uh, the Contra funding, you know, the whole Iran Contra operation. So, and, and then not too long after that, about a year after Rusty Nelson's testimony, he would send out this big email blast saying that the Colonel who he spoke about was none other than Michael Aquino and also made confirmation of this to the LaRouche uh, newspaper as well, again, for whatever that's worth. But, you know, Rusty Nelson, you know, even, you know, it's clearly documented that he said, you know, it was none other than Aquino, who was his colonel. So that links Aquino, these allegations directly to the Contra Sport operation, and also, of course, links Larry King to that. Well, Rusty, there are... But forgive me, though, but wasn't Rusty Nelson a bit problematic? He was what the one who had made claims about what Hunter S. Thompson being involved in the ring, right? And then he couldn't even identify Thompson from a photo. Yeah, I mean, that is true. And that is fair. Of course, I, I do, you know, I do want to point out as well, there are, you know, other wrinkles with Hunter Thompson that have led me to reconsider the possibility that he could have had some involvement given that it was later in one of these sort of obituaries about him it was ultimately said that um you know that he enjoyed snuff films which was very much in line with what the these allegations about him in the franklin scandal from the first place and although rusty nelson certainly had a tendency to overstate and overinflate a lot of the things that he said a lot of the that more that really came after his uh you know he started really came after his sort of bust for uh, child pornography. I think it bust for evading like the sex offender registry or whatever in the early 2000s after he had talked to Nick Bryant on record for various parts of the book. So up until that point, at any point before, I think like 2003 or so, he was relatively, you know, reasonable. He never, he didn't make that many contradictory statements or anything. He was relatively consistent in that regard and didn't really go overboard. It was only after that that he started to incorporate a lot of this these weirder elements. And his claims about Aquino came before that point. Now, certainly Rusty Nelson is problematic in that he appears to, you know, very, be a pedophile who was, you know, that was why he was hired by Larry King in the first place as a child pornography photographer. So of course you have to take anything these people say with certain amounts of grains of salt, but that also is kind of the very way that the this dark enterprise maintains itself that 
you have, you know, it's going to be a system built on a lot of terrible people because no one who is decent and upright would ever get involved in a pedophile ring in the first place. And so you have to do a little bit of discernment about whether these people who are clearly self-interested and not obviously going to cover for the extent of their own wrongdoings, if they still were able to tell the truth about certain other aspects of this. And in terms of the Iran-Contra support, there are enough clues about Larry King that do make it appear to check out and enough clues about Aquino as well. You know, the fact that way on the early days of Franklin, a, a journalist named James Allen Flannery actually said, you know, he told one of the, I believe he told Carol Stead of the Foster Care Review Board who was doing her own sort of early investigation of this and was predictably getting shut out by all areas of law enforcement. He actually told Carol Stitt that he had found evidence that King had been running money and guns into Nicaragua, which is a pretty you know, stark confirmation right there, a pretty blatant thing to say for a journalist unless you had really gotten some confirmation. And unfortunately, Flannery, when I contacted him like last year, he's very old now, was not really in, in it anymore, didn't, wasn't able to very easily respond to my questions, but he did offer, he did at least offer confirmation to me that yes, he had found evidence linking Larry King to the Iran-Contra operation. Of course, it's already known and documented in Nick Bryant's book that King had financed the group Citizens for America, which was one of the big Contra, pro-Contra lobbying operations that even had the infamous lobbyist Jack Abramoff part of it at one time. And Larry King was uh, openly described how close friends he was with William Casey, the former CIA director who knew a lot more about Iran-Contra than he ever revealed and also died rather conveniently just as the case was heating up. And then with the Kino himself, he, there was one statement in an early uh, news, set of news articles about him, I believe it was the San Francisco Examiner, that talked about how the uh, city's, the San Francisco Police Department Intelligence Unit had been keeping tabs on him since the early 80s. They'd taken notice of how the Temple of Set was filled with intelligence operatives, military intelligence operatives, and it also uh, caught wind of the fact that he had been claiming to report directly to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which means that Aquino was clearly very high up in the military chain of command. It was very well connected to these circles that almost certainly would have known about these covert operations. So although, and then finally, the one thing that, you know, we sort of touched on in the previous roundtable is the fact that Aquino, you know, the whole Presidio case was in the early stages, uh, largely covered up by the U.S. attorney in San Francisco, uh, Joseph Rusiniello, who was uh, previously been involved in, you know, he, he was sort of lobbied by the CIA to return money from one of these Contra drug dealers that had been seized, uh, seized in a raid. And he basically lied about it to Gary Webb about why he did it. He discarded a claim that it was to avoid a costly legal battle when actually his office had been directly lobbied by the CIA and Rusiniello had literally been described in a memo as most compliant to our interests. And so Rusinello having dual roles in covering for Iran Contra and also covering for Aquino, who, you know, not only did he botch the prosecution of Gary Hambright, who was a daycare teacher, he never brought Aquino into the mix at all with these prosecutions. So that's sort of another interesting overlap between the world of Iran Contra and the world of Aquino. So I say certainly in this case, there are a lot of circumstantial clues indicating that what Rusty Nelson attested to with the Iran-Contra connection is exactly is what actually happened. 
I'll also kind of point out as well that Aquino was uh, involved in the American Security Council uh, by the mid-1980s. Of course, Aquino uh, tried to allege that uh, it wasn't really uh, much more than a paper membership, but uh, obviously he had cited uh, John Fisher and thanked him for uh, his assistance in one of the papers that he had wrote uh, during the earlier part of the decade. So his denials are not entirely compelling in this case. Uh, but the ASC had a lot of figures who were involved in the private Iran-Contra uh, network. I mean, uh, of course, obviously at the forefront, you had people like John Sinklob. Now, um, it's interesting to point out as well that um, uh, Colonel John Alexander, he of uh, the aviary infamy and non-lethal weapons infamy, um, was actually quite close to a couple of these figures, uh, our general, rather, uh, Richard Steelwell, who was the one who had uh, hooked him up uh, in INSCOM with uh, Albert Stubblebine, Stubbledean, whatever the heck his name was, and the uh, spoon-bending parties and what have you. Uh, Steelwell had been Alexander's commanding officer during Vietnam, if I remember correctly. Steelwell was big in uh, the American Security Council and a lot of these same kind of right-wing networks. And uh, also, Alexander apparently served under uh, General uh, John Sinklob as well as Stilwell. So uh, Sinklob, uh, of course, became the chairman of WACL uh, during the 1980s, uh, during the height of uh, a lot of the private Iran-Contra stuff. Uh, Sinklob was running, uh, was a major figure in running one of the networks. And a founding member of the Council for National Policy. Yes, State. yes, yes. A member of the Order of St. John. He, Sinklob was involved in all kinds of stuff. I mean, we could spend all night going over that. But anyway, so this was another guy that um, Alexander had served under in Vietnam, I believe. Not, I can't remember entirely if that was that when, but at some point in his career, he had allegedly served under Sinklob. So uh, also Alexander ended up in the U.S. Uh, Global Security Council uh, during the late 1980s, where he promoted non-lethal weapons there. Of course, Ray Klein was the founder of that. He was another major figure in Wackle. Uh, and also there was a major Mooney presence in the, the U.S. Global Security Council as well. Of course, the Moonies, again, were one of the major financial donors of Wackle. So Alexander was seems to have been very well acquainted in a lot of these networks. He claims that he did not befriend Aquino until uh, the early knots after they had both retired from the military and were active in the Association of Former Intelligence Officers. But again, you got to wonder, um, there is the Vietnam connection. That's where, or excuse me, Alexander met Steelwell and Sinklob. Uh, there's some other interesting characters who were sort of involved in those covert operations uh, in Thailand and Laos and so forth. Uh, there is compelling evidence that Richard Doty, who later became an associate of Aquino's in the aviary, was involved in some of these operations. I think it was in Thailand. Uh, Doty was a uh, air traffic controller. And while I know that uh, doesn't necessarily sound like a job a special operator would do, you have to remember this was in a country, A, the United States wasn't theoretically supposed to have military personnel in in the first place. And B, this would have been in, you know, runways in the middle of the jungle. This would have been for like the Air America type flights and what have you. So uh, you would potentially have, you know, troops firing at you while you were trying to direct the planes into these narrow strips. It was a lot easier than it might sound when I say that. So anyway, Doty might have been doing that potentially in the Air Force. And another guy who was involved in this was John Lear, 
John Lear uh, flew for Air America. He later became a major pusher of a lot of UFO disinformation in the late 80s, early 90s, was an associate of Bill Cooper and what have you. So yeah, a lot of these guys uh, were active in Vietnam. I don't know if Aquino met uh, any of these characters or if Doty or Alexander encountered everybody at this point, but it is interesting that a reoccurring thread in a lot of these figures who would later manipulate these high weirdness circles is this activity in Vietnam uh, and special operations during the late 60s and early 70s. So there is a lot of interesting stuff with all of that. So Aquino, he did have those links to the American Security Council, and he would later uh, hook up with people who were acquainted in those circles and some of these uh, stranger connections and high weirdness and that type of thing. Well, yeah, yeah, it's a very interesting web, no doubt. And uh, I mean, you can't forget Ollie North himself also got his start in Vietnam. His work with intelligence operations there was part of the you know, the Laos drug smuggling operations and very likely tied in with the Phoenix program as well. Yeah, so. yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, a lot of these guys and, you know, frankly, for that matter, John DeCamp, too. I mean, another one of the big yeah. guys who uh, tried to allegedly expose the, um, I was going to say the Phoenix program was a Freudian slip, uh, Franklin scandal. So, yeah, it's very interesting how you see so many of the people who showed up in these domestic uh, psychological warfare operations cut their teeth during Vietnam and this uh, kind of shady stuff. All right. Nobody else has anything to add. Let us move on to Kathy O'Brien. George, what is Aquino's connection to Kathy O'Brien? Yeah, and honestly, when you get into Kathy O'Brien... She doesn't describe the size of his penis, does she? No, I, I never came across reference to that. Christ, and, it was uh, only Dick Cheney then. All right. Well, yeah, for whatever it's worth, there is some photographic evidence that that may be accurate. But um, regarding Kathy O'Brien and uh, you know, Aquino... You know, it, it definitely is tricky when you, know, when you get into a story like this. You know, Kathy O'Brien, her story of child abuse and my control is one of the most incredibly sensationalized ones there is. And just because of how much it reads like, you know, the standard, you know, standard conspiracy tropes, like if you're just writing a fiction book, you'd probably throw in all this like, yeah, why not throw in, you know, Bush, Clinton, Reagan, you know, Robert Byrd, you know, Satanists and all of these other people into the mix and just have her be abused by every single one of them, you know, and some, at first glance, it, the book and her story very much appears like it's just standard, you know, fic wishful fiction, or, you know, based on a, a story that people would, you know, want to make true, want to put out, but when you get down to it, there are certain things about uh, Kathy O'Brien's story that, you know, is told in her book that she wrote, uh, Transformation of America, and later access denied uh, with her husband and supposed rescuer, Mark Phillips, who was a quote unquote, former intelligence operative who was knowledgeable about mind control, supposedly got her out of it and then got her to begin telling her story. There's enough about Kathy O'Brien's accounts that have at least some ring of credibility to them, such as, you know, she described at one point how her, uh, her, you know, her vagina had been graphically mutilated to basically have a a witch's face carved into it. And there was actually a, uh, a gynecological examination that was you know, done on video that actually confirmed that she did have that. And you know, of course, where the hell did that, that come from? And also in regards to what you said, you know, she made some 
intimate descriptions about some of her abusers, such as saying that Dick Cheney had an incredibly large penis. And then in 2004, the Milwaukee Magazine accidentally caught a snapshot of Dick Cheney in a somewhat revealing position that appears to indicate that he actually did. So there are certain weird tidbits that Kathy O'Brien seems to, you know, about her story that if, if she wasn't abused, if she wasn't a victim of this stuff, well, how is all of this lining up in the way it does? And there are all various little tidbits about her life story, you know, lining up with act, things that were actually going on in the different locations she describes. It, it just, it gets to the point where, you know, there's at least some kernel of truth there for sure. Uh, about how much truth there is versus how much disinformation there is is hard to tease out, but there clearly is something to her story. And so uh, her story, is again, I mean, similar to Benassi's in various ways that she was a longtime victim of mind control programming from a young age, having been abused by her father in Michigan, and then, you know, getting caught by the government on child pornography, and then basically having a deal being made, you know, that will drop the charges if you turn over your daughter to our mind control programming, which of course means you already have a child in Kathy O'Brien who's already been heavily traumatized by sexual abuse, who has, you know, very likely had multiple personalities beginning to split as a defense mechanism to her abuse is now is a prime candidate for this type of programming and is being turned over to the government for that purpose. And Kathy O'Brien, she basically claimed that she was handled for quite a while by Robert Byrd, the senator from West Virginia, a former KKK member, and then ultimately was delivered by Byrd to uh, Michael Aquino to be trained at various military bases. Uh, around the early 1980s. And so she claimed, you know, that Aquino would be, you know, would be torturing her with various high-tech implements, you know, described him using these stun guns, which would, you know, cause incredibly brutal pain for her to, you know, again, induce this type of trauma that allows these personalities to be split and more easily manipulated. And he was, is allegedly the one who provided the instructions for that grotesque carving to be made into her sexual organs. And uh, various military bases were described throughout her story that Aquino was operating at. There was Fort Campbell in Kentucky. And then later, a very key one, incidentally, was uh, various bases in Huntsville, Alabama. And of course, Huntsville is a very prominent city in the military industrial complex. There are a lot of major, major defense and intelligence contractors out there. And she claimed that at Redstone Arsenal, and also at the Marshall Space Flight Center, you know, at NASA, the largest NASA center, I believe, that she was abused there. And again, you know, with access to this advanced technology, particularly coming through NASA, to things like sensory deprivation and virtual reality, uh, that she was further, you know, being put into this sort of dynamic where, you know, the lines of reality and fantasy were being blurred for her. She was just being effectively tortured and traumatized by what Aquino was doing to her with all of this, these assets at his disposal to turn her into this compliant and well-programmed uh, asset, this sex slave, and basically. So ultimately, you know, she claims that, uh, so in addition to the programming, she also claimed that Aquino was directly in the inner circle with people like Dick Cheney and even Ronald Reagan at the White House. She claims that there was one time when, uh, you know, Aquino was invited over to the White House by, by Reagan, who wanted Aquino to put some special programming into her to, in order to basically, you know, basically add extra security that Reagan would sort of be the top, you know, that would 
his directives would supersede any other directives, uh, such as Byrd's, because he was becoming paranoid after the shooting in 1981. Uh, so supposedly Aquino had done something to that effect. Uh, she talked about then how you know Reagan sort of wanted her to go on a tour of all these different Air Force bases with Aquino, who again, uh, in the book, they outright call Aquino the Colonel, which so it appears you know that's the commonality between the Franklin stuff and the and what Kathy O'Brien writes in her book that the Colonel appears to be a uh, consistent sort of reference, a way that Aquino is referred to in this underworld. So basically, Aquino would take her on tour around the, all these Air Force bases and demonstrate her quote unquote programming, which basically means that she was forced to sexually service these all these men and basically, you know, act as if she was really enjoying it and uh, cared about nothing other than pleasing them, which is absolutely sick, but it's precisely what she described in her book. And then finally, there is actually another Iran-Contra connection in the whole mix, according to Kathy O'Brien's story, that or, or not long after Iran-Contra, you know, the cold case broke in the news, that Aquino basically took her on a trip to Manuel Noriega's yacht. And of course, Manuel Noriega of Panama was a longtime CIA uh, asset who was, you know, helping, you know, run the drug trade for quite a while uh, at our behest, but later became a target of ours and was deposed in a, in a uh, basically illegal sort of operation in 1989. But in any event, Noriega, who was definitely part of the operation at the time, Need, needed to be told per the per the account of this book to start moving his operations under the radar. You know that, and so basically, Kathy O'Brien, according to the account of this book, had a message programmed into her by Aquino that more or less said, you know, you've been a good partner for a while, but you need to stop your operations. You need to go under the radar, and if you do, we'll make sure you're protected. And Noriega did not take this news well. Reportedly, he was very upset at being told what to do. By the, by the you know, US military and intelligence structures. And so then Aquino decided to start you know, playing with uh, Kathy O'Brien's programming, so to speak, to basically frighten Noriega and take advantage of a lot of the superstitious and occult beliefs that he had to basically make Noriega believe that Aquino was genuinely a demonic uh, you know, force was literally channeling this sort of evil satanic uh, element that he was you know, he was very much playing up his Satanism, wearing a sort of elaborate robe to make himself literally look like the embodiment of evil. And then he began showing off all the different- They, they needed mind control technology to convince Noriega that Aquino was, you know, about this kind of stuff. Well, to show that, I mean, not just that he believed in it, but he could literally channel these forces, you know, that he was showing off, you know, the different personalities that uh, Kathy could be flipped through to sort of indicate they almost look like demonic possession, you know, that literally, different personalities were, uh, you know, were occupying her mind at various times, was also doing weird things to manipulate her bodily functions, like using sort of hypnotic techniques to slow down her heart rate, which uh, indeed is something that can be done with hypnosis. Yet, uh, the infamous David Ferry uh, what is reported in the Daniel Hopziger's documentary, uh, In Search of the American Drug Lords, who hypnotized one of his victims to you know, sort of children under his wing to stop bleeding. So there's a lot of weird stuff that can be done through this, this sort of uh, advanced and, you know, medical programming over a long period of time. You can really get the, you can really get your victims to do an awful lot that practically looks like it's some kind of dark magic when it really is, you know, just a lot of sick uh, scientific advances being put to 
good use seemingly. But yeah, you know, he was, Aquino was basically doing all of his, his whole shtick, you know, making himself dress, dress up as much as he could, like the, you know, evil satanic priest, and then also showing off all of the insane things that could be done to a victim like Kathy O'Brien to apparently frighten Noriega into compliance. So again, that's the account of the book, and there's a lot about it that, you know, seems, you know, very, rather outlandish, and maybe, you know, possibly implausible. There's also a decent amount that can be corroborated. And once again, it's hard to exactly draw the line, but that's the stuff that comes up in O'Brien's book and gives Aquino a very central role in the whole thing. And again, these links to operations like Iran-Contra do at least have the ring of plausibility given what else is known about him. And unfortunately, you know, if you get further into this netherworld of child abuse victim claims, it becomes harder and harder to discern exactly what the truth is. But I think it's important to realize in almost all these cases, that there is some underlying truth to it, even if the whole thing, you know, regardless of what the whole thing stacks up as, there clearly is something to all of these stories. And Aquino showing up in them again and again is not, I think, a coincidence in the slightest. I would tend to agree. And with respect to um, the credibility of uh, transformation of America, Kathy O'Brien. Yeah, it's it's uh, on, on the face of it, it would appear to be uh, highly out, how outlandish. But, but as you look into the various characters that she mentions, some famous, some relatively obscure, and you look at the people and places associated with them and the kind of patterns there, uh, you start to see a, a, a lot of uh, indirect corroboration for aspects of the network that she's describing, like, say, Boxcar Willie, the uh, country music uh, star, you know, people uh, hear that she's identified Boxcar Willie as one of these people. And, you know, the reaction is naturally going to be one of, uh, you know, incredulity, you know, it's going to be like Boxcar Willie, country music stars. But uh, you can actually look into his background. He was, you know, deep into the Air Force, you know, served for a number of years. Uh, flying uh, missions to Germany, very possibly an intelligence connection there, especially when you consider that uh, one of his first uh, big media appearances was uh, Chuck Barris's The Gong Show, which of course brings us to uh, to um, uh, Barris's uh, account of working for the CIA under the cover of uh, hosting a game show and everything, and you know which was universally uh, kind of ridiculed in the mainstream uh, press. Well, there was also this wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Maybe it's true. They even made a movie about it. But that's just one example The Boxcar Willie. Uh, you can trace him to this Air Force uh, uh, and, and then to Chuck Barris, uh, alleged CIA connections there. But when you, I, I find that, uh, you know, as, as you get more into parapolitics and everything, the world of transformation of America, uh, you know, kind of starts to seem more uh, more real than, than the world that's uh, sold to us. And uh, that's, that's what's terrifying about these types of things. You, you realize how much, uh, how different the world uh, really looks, uh, you know, just from a different perspective, you know, like, like what's really going on behind these facilities, behind these bases. I mean, that's one aspect of uh, Kathy O'Brien's account, uh, the uh, identifying these military installations and NASA facilities, as George mentioned, uh, you know, which, which ties into, you know, Air Force, Space Command and that type of uh, those high tech uh, weapon systems research, which all ties into mind control programs, uh, high tech uh, mind. That's what a lot of the SDI was a cover for. You know, they'll never acknowledge that officially, but uh, there's uh, a lot of indications of that. That's what uh, John Alexander was doing, too, with the non-lethal weapons programs. A lot of this uh, absolutely related to mind control and uh, also other, uh, you know, high tech uh, microwave weapon systems. And, you know, the, the, the these uh 
a lot of that was done through the Air Force Space Command and NASA facilities being a, a part of that nexus. And, uh, you know, Aquino, of course, has said many times that he was one of the um, earliest uh, space intelligence officers, uh, you know, so he's directly a part of that uh, network as well. And a lot of these bases, when you look at these Air Force bases, they're connected with the Strategic Air Command uh, off at Air Force Base, where you had the Paul Bonacci uh, described his programming taking place there was a strategic air command facility. The officers there that he identified were uh, associated with the stri strategic air command and uh, that, that you could also connect that to uh, a number of these other cases like the Golden State Killer, where it's tied to uh, SAC bases. Uh, Offit also turns up in the JFK case of incidentally, you know, with the witnesses in the garrison investigation, particularly one Thomas Beckham being kind of uh, uh, Hidden, uh, hidden in the uh, shadow of Offutt Air Force Base, the the uh, command there was uh, involved in an operation to kind of uh, to kind of make him disappear during the during the uh, garrison probe. So, but but this oh, SAC yeah, Offutt actually also turns up in uh, some of the allegations about the Collins elite as well. Um, allegedly, yeah, some of this technology was used to try to induce possession there, uh, and it did not um, work very well. Let's just say. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of just really strange connections. Um, to sort of add to, to some of this, I mean, Adriana Puhar, Adrina Puharic, um, you know, kind of the godfather of you know, non-lethal weapons research, or at least in some accounts, uh, would have it. Uh, also, uh, you know, after he was effectively cut off from CIA funding around the mid-50s, I mean, it seems like some of his research uh, was funded from other sources, like the, uh, you know, I think the early Atomic Energy Commission, uh, but also NASA, too, uh, around like the early 60s. I mean, all the way back then, there was kind of this legacy. But yeah, it's, it's kind of important to note that, I mean, a lot of the um, technology related to non-lethal, or a lot of the research rather related to non-lethal weapons technology uh, really didn't fall under the purview of the CIA. I mean, a lot of it was like military or related to NASA or some of these other agencies. Um, I think that's kind of one of the re uh, mistakes that a lot of researchers make uh, is to focus on um, the CIA exclusively. I mean, a lot of weird stuff was being done under the uh, auspices of a lot of agencies. DARPA was another one that was doing some crazy stuff. So yeah, definitely something to keep in mind. Uh, but sorry, Thomas, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, that's all good. I was uh, kind of going to onto a million tangents myself, but mainly trying to bring it back to the Air Force Space Command, Strategic Air Command, as it relates to high-tech weapon systems and, uh, and how that relates to mass uh, mind control uh, programs, uh, at least uh, a lot of these weapon systems are uh, also targeted, of course, you know, the official reason of being able to destroy cities and destroy targets at a distance, destroy, you know, that, 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 all, that stuff is all going on too, but a lot of this stuff creates this mechanism for this uh, mass scale um, um, programming, uh, influencing people's minds via electronic mechanisms and stuff, which is something that Aquino himself wrote about with the uh, uh, co-authored the Mind War paper with uh, Paul Vallely of uh, one of those kind of key figures in the QAnon incidentally, uh, which is another example of mass scale psychological warfare, you know, and, and uh, the Air Force Space Command, Strategic Air Command uh, orbit uh, that, that uh, ties us to, yeah, the Franklin uh, scandal it ties us to the Golden State Killer, you know. With the the you know George has a lot of research on that. Uh, it has um, 
uh, t- ties us to a number of things. Uh, the you know Columbine and a number of uh, mass shootings. You had uh, the backgrounds of these uh, individuals were either directly or via their families associated with uh, Air Force bases and specifically former Strategic Air Command facilities. Now it's become the Strategic Command. And, Wasn't and, the uh, uh, was the base in Minot, um Nebraska, where uh, what was it? John Carr allegedly committed. Yeah, Minot, Minot Air Force Base in North Dakota. That was also strategic air command. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the ties into the Son of Sam mythos. Yes, one of the key uh, strategic air command facilities, actually. Yeah, and and so so they that was uh, yeah. Trying to recall that, so you have all over and over again in these cult. uh, yeah, Jordan uh, Gordon Call, also the uh, big uh, posse comitatus Christian identity guy. Um, he had a shootout with authorities near the uh, base there in uh, ne- uh, Nebraska, or excuse me, um, North Dakota. So, yeah, I mean, there was, yeah, it does kind of seem like it's a reoccurring theme that a lot of these uh, interesting characters show up around these bases. Yeah, not, not to get too off topic too, but the funny thing is if you get the second, you know, the more recent edition of the John DeCamps book and the Frank the Franklin cover-up. The, you know, the first half of the book's all about Franklin. The second half of the book is more or less just him defending all of these different militia figures, including Gordon Call, as you mentioned. So it's interesting that John DeCamp has played a close had that a close connection with those figures as well. And raises even more doubts about his sincerity, but not to get too off track. Such a close relationship to William Colby, who was, uh, you know, managing the stay behind armies uh, in uh, in Europe, and then first of, and then moving over to Southeast Asia to run similar programs of uh, state-sponsored terrorism there. And then uh, he's close to De Camp, and then uh, De Camp is the kind of liaison to uh, directly from the core of the Gladio stay behind armies type operations is is really liaising with these uh, militia figures. Very interesting. Yeah, I should say, you know, although I'm not going to say exactly who the source is just because of how sensitive this was, but I've spoken to someone who's actually met John DeCamp, was trying to do research on important cases, and instead, you know, was basically being, got no useful information and was being, in fact, sexually harassed, I mean, really sexually assaulted by DeCamp at one point, describes having him stick his hand down her blouse at one point, him making a lot of vulgar sexual jokes sort of bordering on pedophilia like making a, a joke about the a practice in certain uh segments of the islamic world about raping these underage boys there was an expression women are for childbirth boys are for fun that john de camp was joking about in farsi uh, with his paralegal who incidentally had a, a record of early sexual assault as well but somehow got hired by de camp to be a paralegal in his purportedly legitimate law office Described how DeCamp really... Which, which Georgia does fit with the practice of Bakabazi. Yeah, well, that's exactly what it sounds like it was describing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she talked about how... Which, DeCamp... which DynCorp was supposedly a part of, not to interrupt that's, you, but... That's right, yeah. And, I mean, DeCamp, he spent... I mean, he had an odd childhood. He was sort of staying in Minnesota at the uh, at their version of Boys Town and was sexually abused there. He ended up going... Uh, on this expedition to Iran with the, I believe it was to Iran with a geologist and then somehow the geologist got fired and to campus they took over the job even though he was pretty young at the time and took a Farsi around then. He ended up falling into the circle of William Colby and was a attractive candidate due to knowing all these different language, these different languages. And if I had to guess his history of abuse as well probably played some role. 
and why he would be such an attractive sort of protege. But you know, then the camp, you know, according to my source, the camp kind of seemed like an empty shell in a lot of ways that he had you know, his law office basically didn't do any actual work. He was more or less faltering. You know, there was a period of time when he was on top of the world in Nebraska. And then by the 21st century, that pretty much completely evaporated. And it seemed to my source, like the sort of inference of it was that the camp was none other than a puppet. He was being used by powerful forces to accomplish various things. You know, he ran for the Senate while he was still in Vietnam and uh, the Nebraska State Senate while he was still in Vietnam and won his seat there. He more or less openly bragged about having a record of representing big banks and big business in the state. And then, you know, he ended up uh, supposedly exposing Franklin while injecting a ton of this uh, sort of, you know, far right type, you know, militia type disinformation into the mix as well. And then after all that, he basically is just a total husk of a man and to the point where he's really just sexually harassing individuals, his wife, apparently, you know, by accounts I've seen, like didn't trust him to be alone with another woman. He made statements to the effect that, you know, he had taken nude photographs of his teenage daughter in the pool at one point. So there's a lot of weird stuff with the camp, certainly that in case he was being puppeteered. But again, we have, as usual, it seems digressed quite a bit from the main topic, but that's an indication of all the personages that you see coming out of Vietnam. And Aquino was right there in the mix. Uh, glorious, is it not? All right. So how about the White Eagle Underground? We have discussed this before in a prior show, George. Well, actually, I guess two now. So how about it uh, in this uh, case? Are there any ties between Aquino and that whole network? Yeah, pretty striking one, in fact. And just, you know, don't want to rehash the whole thing, but to give a brief overview of the White Eagle Underground, it's basically this sort of alleged, uh, you know, this alleged underground group that's involved in you know, satanic practices involved in these uh, white supremacist and Nazi type beliefs and also involved in child abuse. It's basically this uh, essentially is described as running all of these different, you know, organized crime operations like drug running and child trafficking, child pornography and murder for hire, domestic terrorism, you know, the whole gamut of all these wonderful things that you know that the intelligence services have been part of. The White Eagle Underground is basically described as sort of the core inner circle group that is perpetrating all these events, described as having a, uh, you know, a cadre of these military and intelligence officials from entities like the Army, the Air Force, the CIA, at the very top of the food chain, and then sort of uh, using a lot of these operatives from various white supremacist groups and also terror groups from other countries like Russia, Germany, the Middle East, uh, for these purposes as well in various operations. And you know, using them to do the dirty work essentially, and also described as having very strong contacts with Latin American drug lords, uh, not too surprisingly. And I mean, that's basically what the White Eagle Underground is described as—a sort of broad, sort of coalescing group that takes a lot of these different incidents that you and I, I mean, the people here, have studied for a while, and kind of merges them under one single umbrella. And the way that it came about was a rather interesting. Uh, way you know there was a an investigator was sort of working uh of unknown name he's identified as uh Choctaw Joe in these documents I believe NYPD documents how he was working as a consultant for a law enforcement investigation of the NYPD into a domestic terror threat they had received some intelligence that a white supremacist group in Houston was plotting 
incidents of domestic terrorism against New York City and other major cities. And so, you know, they're trying to investigate as much as they could about this. And in the course of this investigation, one of the, you know, one of the things that came up was that there were multiple child abuse cases in the Houston area that could be linked to this network, including the case of a, the abuse case of a boy named Nicholas Schultz. And Nicholas Schultz was the son of Paul Schultz and Belinda Schultz. And you know, Paul Schultz was a, you know, he had a history with his family. You know, he was reportedly had mafia connections through his family, involvement in uh, with various, you know, servicing various oil rigs and you know, having sort of classified access to those. Basically an unsavory individual. I mean, and also an unsavory individual all around and that he was ultimately found to be a pedophile who had molested Nick Schultz. And by Nick's early accounts had actually that, you know, taken Nick and prostituted him out to various friends of his in this dark underworld. You know, various individuals like uh, a Mexican mafia operative named Tenorio Luga, who was also described as being an operative of the CIA and the uh, ATF Bureau. Various, you know, various other uh, child abuse figures, you know, Tenorio Luga, for example, described as running this sort of safe house by the Mexican border that had tons of, uh, you know, Hispanic, you know, Latino children just trapped in there. So he was very likely running a child trafficking operation, talked about, you know, handling uh, you know, Mexican money, pesos, uh, talked about, you know, being involved in operations like, you know, moving drugs and murdering police officers, you know, shooting at ships in the Bay in Galveston, Texas. So, you know, all of these different sort of organized crime operations mixing in with some absolutely sick, uh, you know, child abuse claims going on there. And where Aquino comes into the mix of it is that at one point there was this whole according to Nick Schultz, when he was relating a story to his mother, Belinda, there was this big sort of, you know, scrambling over there in Houston because a, uh, basically the, a very prominent figure in their network named First Star was supposedly coming over to meet all of them. So they were, you know, prepping everything, getting ready for the, essentially their leader to arrive and made sure that he was well taken care of. And, you know, so they brought in, you know, First Star, he was sort of the guest of honor, and First Star was described by Nick at the time as having a, a widow's peak and evil eyebrows. And anyone who's seen a picture of Michael Aquino can probably guess where this is going. But ultimately, uh, I think like a month later, Belinda was trying to find more out about the cult, you know, because Nick had been talking openly about satanic practices, you know, they were doing these sort of satanic rites, you know, in the in the course of what, you know, in the course of the operations, like basically these sort of black mass type things and sacrifices. And so she was uh, trying to learn more about this sort of thing because it was entirely foreign to her at the time. So she checked a uh, documentary out at the video store called The Cult Experience. And she was playing it and the uh, keynote came up on the video and you know, actually was speaking on the video. And as soon as this happened, Nick came out of his room and basically said, you know, mommy, I, I heard first star's voice. So he pretty much made the link, you know, that first star was Michael Aquino. And uh, so, you know, you have that, you know, pretty clear indicator, you know, uh, unprompted identification, you know, that no, there was no, you know, nothing else that would have linked the video that was playing to first star, but Nick just made the identification right on his own and said, you know, that sounds like first star. So based on the physical description and the, you know, voice identification, there's a pretty solid indication that Michael Aquino 
with actually a very high up official in the White Eagle Underground group. And of course, hearing the descriptions of what the White Eagle Underground did, I mean, involvement in drug rings going back to, I'd say about the 1960s, according to the dossier that I found, which, or got my hands on, which kind of is the core of a lot of the allegations. And also, uh, you know, and then op involvement in a lot of these other domestic terror operations later on, like the Oklahoma City bombing. And speaking of the Oklahoma City bombing, there is one account by a former Tulsa, Oklahoma detective named Craig Roberts, I believe, that talked about how he received some sort of inside source that a Mexican drug lord, uh, can't remember his, uh, the drug lord's name at the time, but you know, there was this Mexican drug lord named, uh, oh yeah, it was Juan Garcia Abrego. Uh, and basically that he had supposedly delivered the finances for the Oklahoma City bombing. And there also, and for one news account that I found, Gar Garcia Abrega had also been connected to the Matamoros uh, satanic cult that was involved in drug running, the one run by Adolfo Costanzo. So you have a lot also of- also a Cuban-American, interestingly enough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's another very plausible CIA connection right there. But, uh, but yeah, you know, this White Eagle Underground, you know, a lot of these common elements keep showing up in, you know, between these different cases that point to this kind of underground network and then Aquino showing up very much in the thick of it. You know, it, it becomes clear, you know, that it, if he's some kind of supervisory figure, then the Iran-Contra stuff clicks because the White Eagle Underground was very likely part of that. And also the whole domestic terrorism clicks because as we've been alluding to, you know, that's an element of psychological warfare. These terror operations like the Oklahoma City bombing and later on you mean of course 9-11 which is also very uh a lot of parallels between 9-11 operation and the White Eagle Underground's described activities as well and, and George the connections between the Council for National Policy and the White Eagle Underground too as well that might connect Aquino to the CMP too well yeah, yeah. Too, I mean you know I mean uh as we've talked about, I think on the mysterious Ohio one too, I mean, there's uh, the connection between the White Eagle Underground and the Order of St. John. Of course, we found documentation of this in the papers of Larry McDonald, uh, which again is interesting um, because John Sinklub, who was active in the American Security Council, potentially with Aquino, was involved in the Order of St. John. So, I mean, that also uh, puts them in very close proximity to each other. And I mean, again, this whole sort of White Eagle thing yeah, it's a, a very uh, interesting recurring motif in this underground world of these, you know, fascist, you know, underground fascist networks and all. And for none other than the Kino to be allegedly a part of it really sort of completes pieces of the puzzle, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're now moving along to Mr. John Brisson's section. All right, we've already been talking a little bit about this Colonel Alexander guy. Uh, he is well known in UFO and high weirdness circles, also for his involvement in the aviary and with non-lethal weapons. All right, I've uh, already described how he allegedly hooked up with the Kino after these guys were out of uh, the military. Now, John, you've heard that there were more intimate connections even between uh, Aquino and Alexander. Uh, can you take us through that? Yes, and I want to help S90, who you've had on the show on the farm recluse a few times uh, through this research with Alexander um, and Aquino. So, um, of course, like you mentioned, another interesting figure in the same sphere as Michael Aquino is one General John B. Alexander. Uh, when doing facial recognition... It's, Colonel, it's Colonel John. He never made a Colonel, it. not Colonel. General. Sorry about that. Um, when doing fa facial recognition searches for Lilith Aquino, a young but very uh, 
similar face kept appearing in software with a very high accuracy rate. Uh, one was Victoria Lucas Alexander. Uh, the, J the JPEG matches led directly to John B. Alexander's website. When it turns out he's one of the major figures in the UFO movement, closely associated with Robert Bigelow, the billionaire entrepreneur who owns Skinwalker Ranch. Skinwalker Ranch. Um, in fact, on the ranch's own website, John B. Alexander is listed as an important figure um, right below George Knapp, which is one of the hosts of Coast to Coast AM thing. Investigating Alexander, it turns out the opening sentence of Aquino's From PSYOP to Mind War is directly re referencing Alexander. Psychotronic research is in its infancy, but the United States Army already possesses an operational weapon system designed to do what Lieutenant Colonel Alexander would like ESP to do. Alexander is no stranger to ESP phenomena. He has photographs of himself with many famous psychics on his website, including Yuri Geller, who wrote the forward to his book, Rea um, Reality Denied, in 2017. Um, I think it's important to give a brief history of Alexander's employment. Uh, Alexander listed in the Army as a private in 1956, ultimately retiring as a colonel in 1988. His assignments include Commander Army Special Forces Teams, U.S. Army, Thailand, Vietnam, 1966-1969, Chief, Chief of Human Resource Division, U.S. Army, Fort McPherson, Georgia, 1977-1979, Inspector General of the Department of Army, Washington, 1980-1982, Chief of Human Technology, Army Intelligence Command, U.S. Army, Arlington, Virginia, 1982-1983, Manager of Tech Integration, Army Material Command, U.S. Army, Alexander, Virginia, 1983-1985. Director of Advanced Concepts of U.S. Army Lab Command, Aldalfi, Maryland, 1985-1988. During his time in his, in his career that is not clearly outlined in the above timeline, while captain in the infantry at Schofield Barracks, Honolulu, the Australian magazine Nexus reported um, uh, in 1971, Alexander was driving in the Bimini Islands looking for the lost continent of Atlantis. So there, you know, pushing New Ageism and Theosophy. With his former wife, Jan Northup, Alexander performed ESP experiments with dolphins, along with Dr. C.B. Scott Jones and Theodore Rockwell, a prominent New York nuclear engineer has worked on naval nuclear propulsion systems. and also serves as the vice president of the United States Psychotronics Association. Alexander was also official representative for the Silva Mind Control Organization. Oh, just also, to jump in for a second, too. Yes. C.C. Scott is uh, also, uh, or allegedly was also a figure in the aviary and uh, was their uh, link uh, to the uh, funds uh, from Lawrence Rockefeller. That would, yeah. I mean, it's all interconnected. It's all incestuous. Uh, yeah, if, I, sorry, if I could jump in, too, for a sec, Silva Mind Control is sort of the parent group of a interesting group in uh i mean it was operating in in basically the seattle area that i found i think it was called silver mine control international or the institute of insight it sort of split from them and was actually directly connected to one of ted bundy's victims and was uh one of the many signs that uh this victim donegal manson may have been involved in some kind of mk ultra type program herself another hidden background of the whole bundy case so yeah like a lot of stuff interconnects when you get deep into this yeah, I would urge everybody to check out the uh, show I did with George and Ted Bunny. We got more into that stuff there. But yes, a lot of this stuff is all interconnected. But anyway, back to you, Joan. And he was also a past president and board member of the International Association for Near-Deaf Studies. And most 
Curiously, during his career in the Army, Alexander showed exceptional interest in esoteric techniques explored by Channon in his first Earth Battalion manual. An example of this is neurolinguistic programming with which he helped to create Jedi warriors, according to his own account in his 1990 book, The Warrior's Edge, which he discusses meditation, active listening, intuition, visualization, biofeedback, martial arts, and psychokinesis as researched by the United States military. According to John Ronson, in 1977, Lieutenant Colonel Jim Channon wrote a letter to Lieutenant General Walter Kerwin, then U.S. Army Deputy Chief of Staff, about his proposal. Channon was given an open-ended assignment, a small Pentagon budget, and spent two years by his own accounts exploring the, the depths of New Ageism and how it applied to the United States military. During this time, Channon visited 150 New Age facilities, most notably the Esalen Institute, where he spent considerable time training under Michael Murphy, co-founder of, of, of Esalen. In 1979, Channon presented his slideshow to Army Brass called the First Earth Battalion, in which we assume Alexander, which we can only assume that Alexander was present for this, or learn from it from someone uh, who was, because First Earth Battalion creator Channon's slideshow was then brought to the attention of General Stubblebine. Of course, Stubblebine has also been platform boosted by Alex Jones, you know, um, very much involved with the Council for National Policy and his Infowars show has had Stubblebine on many times to discuss, um, oh, yeah. among Who many his... things, the, the, the false alien invasion. What is his wife again? Like Rima Ludwig? Rima Laval. Laval, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a piece of work, too. Um, so... Yeah, yeah, they both they both have both been on. Um, they've I, I would assume they've also been on Coast to Coast AM if I remember correctly too. Oh, I'm Maybe. sure they've been on many times. I may I may have been <laughs> mistaken about it, but I don't think I am. Um, the head of Insom by Alexander in 1979 and by 1981, Stumblebine had established a secret psychic spies unit at Fort Meade. Two, two years later, Stumblebine would travel to Fort Bragg to pitch Chan and Alexander the Chan and Alexander program to the top leadership of the special operations community. Though by all accounts, the presentation was supposedly a disaster. The Fort Bragg was already a hot bag of hotbed of psychic warfare activity, including the, the men who stare at goats operations. And by 1983, the INSACOM program had employed many, such as Yuri Geller and Dr. Andrija Huark. Hark, yeah, yeah. It should have been noted that in the wake of December 11th, Yuri confided in John Ronson in October 2001. They had been called back to service for the United States government. It appears the Bush administration had decided psychic spies would play a role in search for bin Laden. Also, something I forgot to mention about uh, Ronson is he's also good friends with, with um, both, if I remember correctly, Bill Hicks and Alex Jones, interestingly enough. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz was also a vocal proponent of Alexander and Shannon's ideas. Uh, of course, Paul Wolfowitz, CFR, CMP. As far back as 1991, he read a paper titled, Do We Need a Non-Lethal Defense Initiative? And while Wolfowitz does not name Alexander directly, the influence is almost certainly there. All this work, all this work to breed a, a form of a Nietzschean super soldier, Jedi warrior, has been heavily theorized by Shannon. But it appears to be the hard work of Alexander, and there is much more inflammation in a LaRouche pack, Soldiers of Satan edition, August 2005. The article's title is Cheney Spoonbenders Pushing Nuclear Armageddon. So it's interesting, too, um, I guess in, in the side, something I'm going to discuss a little bit later, um, is that when we're talking about Jedi Warriors, um, Colonel Michael Aquino was also um, obsessed with uh, Star Wars. Uh, he wrote a paper talking about Jedi warriors and Star Wars um, and seemed to just be a, a, obsessed with, with the movie franchise. 
um, and how it could be used for oh, yeah, he positive psychological operations and positive implication marks. Yeah, I think he actually wrote like a full-blown script to be a sequel to the original Star Wars uh, involving the Sith Lords and what have you. Yes, yeah, he of course. Wrote, he wrote Star Wars fan fiction. That was actually how uh, Linda Blood, you know, who later wrote the book The New Satanists, uh, sort of exposing a lot of the dark side of the Kino as she that was how they met it like through their mutual interest in that so yeah he was uh, pretty obsessed with the whole whole movie franchise yeah very much so um he was he's just obsessed with it um well in fairness to akino i mean he wasn't wrong i mean it has i mean become a religion i mean in certain quarters i mean he did certainly uh, i think call it and see the potential that the franchise had to captivate the public imagination true um, so now we get to start where the Council for National Policy figures, affiliated figures begin showing up because I am, you know, one of the lead researchers of the CAP. So, of course, I got to talk about it. Right. So Alexander figures prominently in the journalist John Ronson's book, The Men Who Stare at Ghosts 2004, is related to Channel 4 documentaries and giving his interest in ESP and psychic research it is not out of, out of place association. Alexander has authored multiple books with Council for National Policy long-term member Tom Clancy. He wrote the foreword for him in his book, Future War, Non-Lethal Weapon Systems in 21st Century Warfare, 2010. He wrote commentary inside his UFOs, Myths, Conspiracies, and Realities, 2011 book, alongside Jacques Vallée and Bert Runton, retired American aerospace engineer and entrepreneur who designed the Voyager spacecraft and Spaceship One for Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft. Colonel John Alexander is also rumored to be also Dave Alexander of Tomorrow's Warrior 2017. The books have the same characteristics starting that super weapons of the Department of Defense are being made to make war and destroy all constitutionalist Christians and conservatives from the face of the earth. On Alexander's website, there are photographs of his wife sitting next to Council for National Policy early founding member Edward Teller, father of the atomic bomb. Edward Teller also allegedly had his own Hollywood blackmail ring, which was called Edward Teller's Boys. Um, George, do you know any about anything to add about Teller and no, his I, supposed pedophile ring? Unfortunately, no. You know, I feel bad in a way that I don't. You know, there's just so many of these networks that you end up realizing exist over time it's not just well, it's fascinating people. because teller was a parent uh, was allegedly bob lazar's sponsor kind of getting into area 51 and of course lazar actually ended up running a whorehouse uh, outside of vegas if i'm not mistaken like in the early 90s that was uh kind of what led to his downfall initially so um you know as incredible as it seems there is this kind of <laughs> weird interconnectedness and then of course uh teller was really uh, active in los alamos um as well for many years in fact i think that was where lazar um had first hooked up with teller uh again that's in new mexico uh you know it's like in the same sort of milieu i mean kirkland air force base is to the north of that um but again you know i mean it's this whole sort of nexus i mean of uh, these strange figures of course that were interacting uh, during this time frame in the 1980s yeah very much so um it, it's all again there's so many networks you can only dig up so many right and so many connections between these people it can't all just be coincidences um in a lot of ways um so um uh you know, like I mentioned, Alexander's uh, website, their photographs of uh, Victoria Lackis, his wife sitting next to CMP Edward Teller. 
and and of major note too is what his wife was doing before their marriage. Laval stumbled by and ufologist Victoria Lacus with CB Scott Jones, who you may recall from the ESP experiment experiments with dolphins and Alexander's first wife, Jan Northop. They toured Europe in the Soviet Union where they established a prodigious UFO side network. As late summer of 1991, CB Scott Jones and Laval were planning on a yachting excursion together with Colonel John Alexander to investigate anom anomalies in the Bahamas, similar to Alexander's dives in 1971 in the Caribbean while stationed in Hawaii. Weird, right? Dr. Rima Labelle is, of course, the doctor guest on Jesse Ventura's conspiracy theory show. We flew into the airport to meet Jesse and retreated back to Mexico right afterwards. She stated in an interview that a coming illness would end with mandated medication. Interesting, I guess, how right she is going on with what's currently happening, but I digress there. How, ex uh, how Alexander met his new wife is unknown, but the spheres of interest and acquaintance clearly overlap. She has written... Uh, has written a column under the title "The Devil's Hammer" from uh, for from the balcony.com and lasvegasaroundtheclock.com, which is still available through archive.org. She's spoken at Soga de Alma, Spanish for Vine of the Soul, in a conference titled "The Sixth International Amazonian Shaman Conference: Grace and Madness." Now, the speaker of this conference was one Dr. Dennis McKenna. And also been researching the mysticism of Catholic saints for over 20 years. She's read a book titled Holy Eroticism, The Erotic Life of the Saints, which you cannot find anywhere. And probably, I don't think I'd want to. Most notably, Victoria's breakthrough research, the Alexander UFO Religious Crisis Survey, 1995. A survey of a hundred, a survey of a thousand theologians, should I say, on the impact of UFOs on religion was funded by the Bigelow Foundation and is available on the National Institute for Discovery website, since removed and seemingly unavailable. Sounds a lot like Operation Bluebeam, does it not? Following his retirement from the Army, Alexander served for several years as program manager for non-lethal defense at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. The Albuquerque Journal reported in March 1993 that last year, Alexander organized a national conference devoted to researching reports of ritual abuse, near-death experiences, human contacts with extraterrestrial aliens, and so-called anomalous experiments. The uh, April 1994 Scientific American report, if those researchers are no, are, are no um, federal researchers are no strangers to investigating a broad array of non-lethal devices, including low-frequency infras infrasound genera generators powerful enough to trigger nausea or diarrhea, electronics dis disrupting pulses of electromagnetic radiation, and biological agents that can chew up, chew up crops. The official program of the conference stated, non-lethal defense has emerged as a potential new means of applying force. Non-lethal defense is an approach to explores options for attacking targets, including non-traditional foes. Among the subjects covered at the conference were radio frequency weapons, high-powered microwave technology, acoustic technology used to uh, transmit subliminal voices in the victim's head, voice to technology, voice synthesis, and application of extreme frequency electromagnetic fields to non-lethal weapons. Colonel John B. Alexander, program manager for non-lethal psychotronic defense, Los Alamos National Laboratory, served as conference chairman. Now, interesting thing about that is Michael Aquino of Messiah to Mind War at the end of the document, discusses some of these very methods and the way that they could use uh, psychological operations, including uh, atmospheric electronic electromagnetic activity, which ARP, uh, air ionization, and extremely low frequency waves could be used on the American public to influence their moods and or their opinions. So it seems that 
you know, John Alexander and Michael Aquino's research as far as controlling the American population with quote unquote non-lethal weapons seem to go hand in hand. But I digress there. Well, okay, well, John, well sorry, if oh Sammy, you want to go? Oh, uh, I, I was just gonna add a little bit uh, about what Aquino was doing in Vietnam because it's directly related um, to what you're talking about, John. Um he was uh you know, he was involved in special operations there and was involved in Operation Wandering Soul, which was a sonic terror campaign where the military played on the Vietnamese fear of ghosts uh, and the afterlife. And they, they played recordings in Vietnamese language where wailing voices screamed about how horrible the afterlife was, how senseless a death it was that they had and how they should have surrendered. Um, and, and these were played really horrendously loudly and um, that, that was his, his way to uh, convert the enemy non-lethally. And, and he, he spoke about it um, gleefully as if he was, you know, this, this pacifist who, who really hated physical violence. He, yes, he did it for Sign Up to Mind War, <laughs> uh, Sam. He really did, didn't he? And for mm-hmm. Sign Up to Mind War, he literally is like, oh, well, it, was, it was good for them. And it was used in the most uh, gentlest and purest of methods. <laughs> What's interesting, though, is he only speaks about how how what he was doing was playing on their superstitious beliefs. But I do think what what you're talking about in terms of psychotronic and and you know um, what we're seeing now with Havana syndrome that that's probably more um, you know what he was involved with in a black ops sense. Very much so, Samuel. I 100 percent agree with you on that. Uh, George, you got anything to add, real quick? Before I continue. Yeah. Yeah, what I just wanted to add was in, in regards to those types of so-called non-lethal weapons you're talking about, and I'll be honest, I mean, voice-to-skull type stuff and, you know, electromagnetic, you know, blasts that, you know, that doesn't exactly sound that non-lethal to me, but that is, of course, the cloak they dress it up, you know, as long as you're just going after their mind instead of their body, that supposedly makes it okay. But that, what's interesting about that is that one of the people who was trying to investigate Aquino back in the days when all these ritual abuse cases were breaking, like Presidio, and then the other ones in California, her name was Diana Napolis. She was a Yeah, Kirio Jones, right? That's what, yeah. that was her, that was her pseudonym, correct? Yeah, she, yeah, that was the name she posted under, and, you know, initially stayed under that name for a while, and then, you know, ultimately got unmasked by a lot of these people, the sort of devotees of Aquino, who were unhappy with what she was posting, and was, you know, doxxed, revealed to be Diana Napolis, and then after that, she, by her accounts to people like Alex Constantine was being targeted with the same type of weaponry that Alexander and Aquino both showed as some kind of affinity for and that ultimately she was apparently tortured by this and driven crazy to the point where she seems to have completely lost her mind now if you can find her blog on WordPress still I believe and it's really just a series of this incoherent you know rambling so it really goes to show you know that these people so it is first of all interesting that she's an opponent of these types of people and then she seems to be targeted by this exact weaponry and also that it's obviously anything but non-lethal that you can totally wreck someone's mind by the application of it yeah you have to kind of remember i mean with this sort of milieu this network of individuals you know kind of connected with the aviary i mean certainly i mean one of the og kind of gang stalking victims i think arguably was paul benowitz of course, the Benowitz affair was all playing out, I mean, in the uh, early to or really throughout the 1980s. Uh, Benowitz, of course, uh, ran a company that did a lot of contract work for the Air Force. Uh, he thought that he had uh, recorded some actual UFOs over Kirkland Air Force Base. 
and that had led to a campaign of harassment uh, carried out by people like Doty and uh, others. Uh, eventually, Benowitz had a full-blown mental breakdown. I mean, he had to be institutionalized for a time. Uh, there's, of course, been speculation in a lot of years in the field that he was possibly subjected to some kind of non-lethal weapon. Um, you know, again, it's it's really interesting how you see a lot of this same kind of stuff uh, show up with these networks over and over again. Uh, but John, getting back to what you were yes, saying. Yes, very much. Uh, yeah, so, um, of course, Casper National Policy member and Florida Priory Zion member General William Jerry Boykin. When commanding general of the U.S. Army Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, from 1998 to 2000, tested many of John Alexander's non-lethal weapon solutions, such as sticky foam, which they claim failed. In 2001, it appears John Alexander founded a company, the Apollinaire Group, in Las Vegas, named after Guillaume Apollinaire, who was credited for coining the term cubism in 1911 the term orphism in 1912, and the term surrealism in 1917. Let's just note that on uh, September 7, 1911, police arrested and jailed uh, Guillaume Apollinaire on suspicion of aiding and abetting the theft of the Mona Lisa and a number of Egyptian statuettes from the Louvre, the, from the Louvre, should I say Louvre, um, but released him a, a week later. The theft of the statues had been committed in, in, in 1907 by a former secretary of Apollinaire, Honorary, Joseph Garay Pirette. I recently returned one of the stolen statues to the French newspaper, the Paris Journal. Apollinaire implicated his friend Picasso, who had, who had bought the Iberian statues from Pierre and who was also brought in, in for questioning in the theft of the Mona Lisa. He was exonerated. The theft of the Mona Lisa was perpetuated by Vincenzo Peregi, an Italian house painter who acted alone and was only caught two years later when he tried to sell the painting in Florence. What exactly Alexander's Apollinaire group is up to is unknown. In 2003, he served as a mentor to senior officials in the Afghan Ministry of Defense through the Office of Military Cooperation in Afghanistan. During this year, he also published Winning the War, Advanced Weapons Strategies and Concepts for the Post-9-11 World. Beginning in 2005 and continuing for nearly a decade thereafter, he was a senior fellow in the Department of Strategic Studies at the Joint Special Operations University. John Alexander seem seemingly balances the wacky with the pragmatic. John Alexander is interviewed for the documentary feature at The Science Behind the Fiction, which appears on the DVD for the 2009 film Push, starring Chris Evans, Dakota Fanning, directed by Paul McGugan. There he discusses personal experiences with with the paranormal within the U.S. military. He claims that the Soviet Typhoon-class submarine first became known to the American military intelligence by paranormal methods. Paul McGuigan is also director of the pilot episode of the 2016 TV show Designated Survivor with Kiefer Sutherland. Following the destruction of Congress and following the new president, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, a dark subject indeed. Alexander's cousin is also of minor note, one shy hand Gary Alexander, a longtime martial arts expert, friend of the likes of Chuck Norris and Bruce Lee. He runs GaryAlexanderKarate.com, where he's described as simply John Wickian, uh, simply John Wickian. Imagine an army having a division of men like Alexander. It would be analogous to the army marching in with the Ark of the Covenant before it. Some interesting choices and words there. Finally, it's also interesting that one of Alexander's, uh, John Alexander's nicknames is the Penguin, after the inventive Batman villain. 
And so what might we think of Colonel John Alexander, a foul, potentially blue avian penguin, perhaps, or is Alexander just your average psychic mercenary who happens to be an expert in deaf sciences, theontology, trying to make an honest buck, inspired by new age gur gur gurus of Esalen and in turn inspiring figures like Michael Aquino or Bigelow. He is currently no less than a, a linchpin in the psychic warfare field, ufology, new ageism. And what, and what does it say of his many acquaintances and subjects that he's been involved with all these years? And what are the odds that fake or facial recognition software pulled up Victoria Lacus when searching for Lilith Aquino leading to all of this? Bill Cooper wrote in Behold a Pill Horus, Michael Aquino has previously stated as an espoused head of the temple said he's apparently well-educated and holds a PhD in political science, professor at Golden Gate College in San Francisco. His speciality is Western European political affairs. Aquino resides on Leverworth uh, Street in San Francisco and is believed to be, uh, and the number is believed to be 2430. He resides at the address with his girlfriend, children of his girlfriends, and his mother. His father separated from the family some time ago and lives in Southern California. Could Victoria Lacus Alexander be Lilith Aquino's daughter, but not Michael Aquino's? Well, actually, there were also <clears throat> uh, allegations that they were sisters online as well, which um, Victoria Alexander denied. So, to which uh, of course she would. <laughs> I, I mean, th I think it's more plausible that they were sis that they would be sisters, though. I think the mother than daughter, they don't look like they're that much older than one another. True. Uh, there, there is an uncanny resemblance between them, but there's nothing you know remotely conficial to uh, confirm a family relationship. Um. All right. So, how about Aquino's links to QAnon? From PSYOP to Mind War has been cited by many as an influence, including our friend Radix at Patrick's Soapbox. John, what was your assessment of its influence on the Q operation? Yes, yeah, so I did a show on my channel where I read from PSYOP to Mind War and gave my, you know, at length uh, ideas of why I think that they're linked. But briefly, we can talk about how uh, Colonel Paul E. Uh, Vallely, of course, they misspell his name on the front of the paper as Paul E. Valley, uh, was the co-author with uh, Michael Aquino in the paper from PSYOP to Mind War. Now, Paul E. Vallely on um, the show American Canuck with Mike Phillip uh, on October 14, 2019, mentions that QAnon is information that comes out of a group called the Army of Northern Virginia. This is a group of military intelligence specialists of over 800 people that advise the president, which would be Donald John Trump at the time. The president does not have a lot of confidence in the Central Intelligence Agency or the Defense Intelligence Agency much anymore. So the president relies on real operators who are mostly special operations type people. <laughs> Michael Flynn, Stanley McChrystal. <laughs> oh. This is where Q picks up some of his information. So, of course, Paul Vallely um, was released uh, on a list by the Trump campaign as endorsing uh uh, Trump backing him and when he ran for uh, president in uh, 2021 out of 235 senior military leaders. And Paul Vallely has frequently been a guest on um, uh, From Caravan to Midnight, who is John B. Wells' uh, show, who is a former Coast to Coast AM host. Uh, whose platform boosted many people within the QAnon operation and counts for national policy members as well, 
going on discussing, you know, how valid QAnon is uh, platform boosting the operation. Of course, Paul Vallely was an, is, a, is, is a neoconservative to the Hill. He used to appear on Fox News all the time and it was apologist for the Iraqi and Afghanistan war, the quote unquote war on terror. Um, so we shouldn't trust that guy based on that, let alone that he co-authored a paper about uh, psychological operations in mine war with uh, Colonel Michael Aquino. But also a member this. of uh, what is it, the uh, Center for Security Policy with yep. Frank Gaffney. Yep. So I mean, he's definitely not our guy. So he's definitely running around, you know, mentioning, giving validity to, to QAnon operation. Uh, so when you read from PSYOP to Mind War... Well, just to interject too, right quick, it's interesting that he mentioned uh, Q as being under the command of the Army of Northern Virginia. That's allegedly a name for uh, the intelligence support activity, which is uh, the principal intelligence service uh, at the disposal of the Joint Special Operations Command. Uh, John B. Alexander's um, longtime friend uh, and uh, patron in the Pentagon, General Richard Steelwell, uh, was instrumental in setting up JSOC and allegedly also the intelligence support activity. So, yes. So, in from up to Mind War, Aquino talks about how he's just persecuted by all these conspiracy theorists. And when they read from up to Mind War, you know, they, they took it out of context that they were using that he was proposing the use of psychological warfare on the American public as long as it's from a perfect and pure place by the United States government, which is just laughable just right then. And they're just saying it right. I mean, come on, it's ludicrous. Um, of course, he, you know, discusses using psycho, uh, uh, psychotronics. Uh, he discusses using uh, non-native EMF, uh, kind of like what we see in Havana syndrome being more public now it's less ridicule when you discuss that electromagnetic frequencies might affect the human body and might be used by governments around the world to target people. That there might be some validity to some people who have been targeted and gained stock by the United States. And yeah, granted, some of it probably is uh, mental illness and spiritual possession as well. But, you know, some of it has to be true, right? Um, so, but yeah, he, he talks about it in the paper of how it's a good thing. And as long as you're using propaganda from just the purest, you know, just the purest mindset, you're using it on the people and you're going to win a war. You're going to control their minds using television and media. Of course, he didn't have, he didn't see the internet at the time, right? For I mean, sure. internet was just starting, right? But like, you know, you just add the internet to that and you're, you're, you're controlling people through the most purest of the tensions, we should probably you know, point out too that uh, Colonel Michael Aquino once referred to a national social national socialism as the ultimate personification of political power. Now, now, Stephen, now, now, come on, now, he just meant what's best. All right, he meant using psychological operations, psychographical and psychological warfare on the American public. Now he does talk about well, we can't do it right even though they were doing it before the the, the modernization of the smith bunn act under the obama administration right like they were still doing it they just weren't broadcasting uh, voice of america who by the way you know richard carlson Tucker carlson's father uh was a long-term president of voice of america but i digress actually the longest one if you look at his term uh that i know of uh but you know they still were running psychological operations and campaigns on the American public wrong before the modernization of the Smith-Munn Act. Uh, just then, you know, they can get away with it. 
or at least they reveal it to the, the world and the United States population that they do it. And Voice of America is broadcast on U.S. soil now. Um, but he just frames it is as long as it's used for benevolent and peaceful purposes, it's completely okay to, to massively mind control your a populace to believe that you live in a perfect utopia, the a thousand years of peace, of new age, of love and light promoted by the QAnon group. Uh, it's perfectly fine. And whatever objective that you use to get there, as long as it's in peace and love and harmony, is perfectly fine. <laughs> Gee, we're six. Um, but, you know, it, it's okay. So it's all right. Don't worry about it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when you read from Psyop to, to Mind War, you can obviously see that the same techniques that are labeled out in that paper. Granted, it is 40 years ago, give or take. Eh, probably the. 35 somewhere in there but it's enough to you even if you take the internet out and you can imagine the internet we're going to get to some of his possible operations using the internet um it's a QAnon operation to the t the white hats are going to come to save us and they even ran it uh with um the dove of oneness and the Nasara grift during the 90s and, and, and the 2000s. I, I covered that in one of my earliest shows. The QAnon operation was planted seeds back then. I mean, how far have these seeds been planted? Alice Bailey? I don't know. Maybe before Alice Bailey in the modern time. I don't know. But from Psyop to Mind War, if you read it with the knowledge of the QAnon operation being done by... Um, nefarious forces within the United States intelligence community and military industrial complex, maybe others too, as well, like the Mossad or, or, um, grew, um, you know, uh, it fits the playbook fits. So I got to say, anybody else got anything to add to that? I mean, there is, I guess there's one thing to bring up and I want to add the caveat that I still need to track down the source again because it's been a while and I'm having trouble finding it now. But I swear back in like 2017 when I was sort of first getting into this kind of research about, you know, Satanism and pedophile rings, I came across a reference to, you know, a claim that Michael Aquino had actually supported Donald Trump in the 2016 election. Uh, if I could find that again, that would be very interesting. But Please, because I, know I have not I seen that. It. Please, George, please, hopefully, that, 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 for our own purposes of research, that would be crucial. Would that really surprise anyone? I mean, we know it does it. It does it. boss, he, Paul Valvole, I mean, was a uh, he, he claims he hates Trump Reagan, supporter. though. And I'm going to talk about that in a minute, Stephen. You know, he hated Reagan. Oh, I hate Reagan. He's a horrible mm, Yeah, sure he did. Um, George, well, just. Like... Oh, sorry. Thank ahead, sorry. I, I was going to say, real quick, he was on a podcast with Michael Deacon. Um, where, and it was right around the election and, you know, he didn't necessarily voice his uh, support for Trump, but he said, you know, there were no other um, likable characters. And, and so he, he felt, you know, like he, he didn't come out and say it like I support Trump or I'm voting for him, but, but yes, in, in so many ways he did. <laughs> so yeah, there is that. that. Might, yeah, that might be, you know, again, I'll put track on the source. I could have sworn that I actually saw the claim that he had literally voted for Trump as well. Uh, so, you know, it could have been just a wrong extrapolation of that. But even what you say in that regard kind of speaks volumes on its own, that of all the people out there, you know, he, he wouldn't even, you know, didn't pick the 
what career, you know, seemingly, you know, career insider Hillary Clinton, who a lot of people in the alternative world, you know, believe is the only, you know, believe is the only, you know, the only bad, you know, person in the, on, on the side of the 2016 election that he goes for the supposed outsider, who of course is an utterly fraudulent outsider, says, I believe quite a lot about what Trump's nature actually was and what Aquino's, you know, game actually is. So that, that's very interesting. It's a, it's a revealing podcast. He, he, he speaks at least five, 10 minutes on it. So. Yeah. Well, Aquino had many of those as we got later in life. And I know we'll get to that later on in the show too. I just wanted to bring up one thing in reference to uh, John, what you said about him hating Reagan. It is interestingly enough uh, mentioned in Kathy O'Brien's book that he hated, that he had sort of an oppositional relationship with Ronald Reagan. Apparently that, you know, Reagan would really wanted him to play up the satanic aspect of what he was doing, even though it made him look like a joke to a lot of the more scientifically inclined, uh, you know, mind control programmers. So there was kind of a bit, a bit of a divide there. And, you know, if Aquino said that only recently about him not liking Reagan, that would actually be yet another sort of, you know, chip checkbox, you know, another thing on Kathy O'Brien's side, you know, a little sort of minuscule thing that doesn't seem like it's that significant. But again, you know, she just accurately describes this interpersonal dynamic that then gets confirmed straight from the horse's mouth. So that's very interesting. And that's actually the first time I've heard that before. So, wow. All right, John, how about Mr. Thomas Schoenberger, a figure that we love to talk about on here? Uh, what do we know about his possible links to uh, Aquino? Yeah, so I actually remember watching this live. Uh, there was the Pillow Talk episode 322 Skull and Bones uh, that featured Dan Cromer, who was Lepo, uh, Michael Aquino, All Seeing You, Carrie Wolf, uh, and Thomas Schoenberger. Uh, so they kind of, you know, they, they're all praising Aquino when they're, you know, when they're uh, talking to him uh, in this, this now defunct uh episode uh that has been you I, I got a copy uh but i can't place it on the internet because supposedly the moment anybody places it on the internet uh they get a copyright strike and supposedly it was placed on bitshoot and i don't know how this happened it was taken down from a copyright strike on bitshoot so someone or a group of people don't want this interview to exist out there on the internet. Uh, you can still find clips. I got the full thing. Uh, and um, I'm not going to say who I got it from. I don't know if the person wants me to mention it or not. If they do, I apologize. I'd give you credit. Um, so listening to it. Uh, so, um, of course, Aquino loves to talk about how he's got PTSD and oh little poor old me I never did anything wrong I meant well love and light so before Thomas Schoenberger talks with Aquino that's what he's discussing you know the standard all oh, the conspiracy theorists are coming after me and they're like they have pitchforks and torches and they want to burn me because I'm innocent and so, you know, Thomas starts mentioning gang stalking, that he's dealing with his own gang stalking issues to um, Aquino. Uh, so they start talking about, you know, Egyptian music and Egyptian architecture. Um, and then Aquino talks about the certain Disney cartoon called Donald and Magic Land um, and discusses, uh, you know, 
um, Pythagoras and a Pythagorean theorem in music and in Egyptian architecture, um, which, you know, I mean, Schoenberger does have an affinity for, for music. Um, I believe that he is a composer. Uh, I believe that he knows how to play the piano. I know some people uh, like to come against Thomas and say that he's not able to do those things. Um, I believe that he can. I don't think he's lying about those things. Um, and I think if you're going to, you know, discuss Schoenberger, I think it's disingenuous to harp on that. Um, I mean, also to call Thomas stupid as well. I mean, obviously, if you listen to him talk to Aquino, Thomas is intelligent. Uh, doesn't mean that he isn't uh, involved to an unknown degree in these operations, but I allegedly, but I digress there. Uh, so um, that it's interesting. Now, during this time, you know, Aquino uh, mentions that he has uh, cancer. Um, which, you know, his faculties were failing him. Um, and so he discusses it a little bit with uh, Schoenberger. So this is when they start discussing, uh, Schoenberger brings up uh, the chaos book about Charles Manson and the Zodiac killings. And so they start discussing that. And so Thomas mentions the Zodiac killer was probably, uh, was was done, the killings were done by like clandestine organizations within the United States of America, um, and Aquino, you know, talks about how uh, the United States and he was very active in psyops, but there's no info the United States government controlled Manson, which is interesting because he didn't really discuss anything of what Schoenberger had asked him, and he did a lot of deflection. Now, I don't know if it's just because Aquino's sick and dying, supposedly. His mental faculties aren't 100%. He does ramble on a lot, and a lot of the stuff he says is nonsensical, but a lot of the stuff he says is also true, and who knows if he's casting spells on people and bringing cognitive dissonance. I don't know, but it's just interesting that he deflects away from the Zodiac killer information and a question that Schoenberger had asked him and then just talks about, well, Manson doesn't have any direct involved the United States government and MKUltra and all that, which is laughable if anybody studied Manson, you know, it's like, what? So, um, and then that's when he goes on a rant about how, you know, Nixon wanted to rid the world of hippies and wanted forever wars and how he really despised uh, Nixon. And then, um, uh, that Nixon exploited the Manson phenomenon uh, with what occurred with the, the tape murders uh, for that reason, to get rid of the hippies and to blame them for it, which and there might be some truth to that. Um, and then Kino talks about how he hates forever wars and he just wants peace. And that's why he writ, wrote from PSYOP to Mind War, which again reiterates what Aquino mentioned in PSYOP to Mind War. Now we know that's not true, that he doesn't really feel that way, but he's going building on that old meth mythos that he continues. So then they start discussing Reagan. And so Aquino says Reagan was a real piece of work and an actor that he necessarily did not like him. Um, and that he would sometimes in his speeches would speak to you like a grandpa. Uh, so you'd kind of be lulled by what Reagan was saying in his speeches, but in reality, it was just a shell and that he was an actor and, and uh, it was it was, you know, a ruse that he was doing on the American population and that Aquino did just did not like Reagan. Uh, so then um, Dan Cromer asked Aquino about LARPers. Aquino claim, claims that he's never heard of the term LARPer uh, and then goes on to discuss he completely 
like disregards anything about LARPing, like live action role playing or any discussion about it. he doesn't even ask, okay, so what does that mean, Dan? What do you mean by LARPer? Like he he, he molds it into uh, a discussion about 1984, a moment of hate and how the government runs psychological operations to make people hate each other, which, yeah, there's some truth in that, but Aquino probably ran some of those operations, you know? So then he kind of goes on this diatribe of how mind war is the counter to that because mind war is actually done in good faith where the government did it in bad faith. Um, and then, you know, discuss the fear of women somehow being a psychological operation the government uses, which is interesting with Aquino and goddess worship, how he would go straight to that. I, I, it's just, it's got, if anybody wants to listen to it, I'll, I'll share it to you privately or send you a link. It's an interesting conversation nonetheless. And then they start discussing 9-11 and the Gulf of Tonkin as being false flags, which Aquino and Michael Deacon show, and among others, has come out and discussed Mossad and Israel's involvement in 9-11, which is quite interesting that he decides to talk about that now, uh, you know, shortly before his death. I don't know if it's some sort of disclosure or if he honestly believes it. Who knows? It's Aquino. And, and all, I have no idea. Um so uh, they talk about the government runs ops attacking women, children, and immigration, and that it's despicable um, and uses it for fear. Um, and when he is asked, by the way, the question is asked uh, by Schoenberger if Epstein escaped by being suicided, you know, that he, uh, you know, th there was a Epstein in his place, uh, like, and then Epstein escaped and, you know, went off to a beach somewhere, an island somewhere is what Thomas is alluding to. And so Again, Aquino deflects. It doesn't even answer that. It doesn't even entertain that or anything. It just talks about when the government running ops attacking women, children, and immigration. That's despicable in relation to Jeffrey Epstein. And in relation to a worldwide pedophilia scandal of the darkest implications, Aquino gives a social justice warrior rant. That's odd. Um, deflection. Yeah, the topics that he chooses to deflect from, I mean, talk the Zodiac Killer, which incidentally, some of the, the last one of those killings, the murder of cab driver Paul Stein actually happened like right by the Presidio, uh, which is, I think that's somewhat fascinating. And then, yeah, that doesn't want to talk anything about pedophile networks, really, that he's only advancing a certain limited uh, view of 9-11 and only now, like, you know, what's, what's his game, you know? hard to say even if you know it's just his mental faculties are kind of going and he's kind of just going through the same loop or if there's uh, or i don't know that he's still still out of game even then his disinformation game even then i don't know it's a very interesting conversation and and you know so thomas does praise aquino in a different stream where he goes well he's not a satanist he's a a a, a, a sethian um, and they're all kind of really like, really like praising Aquino. All of them are. Now, Thomas says later, well, it was to prime the pup to get information out of him. And I don't know if I necessarily believe Thomas on that because he later changes the narrative. Um, and he does defend Aquino, but he later changes his defense. And I'll discuss that. But Thomas slightly, and I'm not trying to trigger anybody, in his defense, does ask Aquino some pointed questions, trying to get some answers out of him. Now, granted, you could say it's all a script. The whole thing could have been a scripted interview. And Aquino, maybe what he is saying is a script too. I don't know. 
but it's still interesting nonetheless. Uh, so Thomas later discussed in a video on December 13th, 2020, uh, that he emailed Aquino on August 11th, 2019, had a phone conversation, private conversation with him August 12th, stopped uh, that Aquino stopped communicating with the world on August 13th. We know by the certificate of death that you got, George, that Aquino committed suicide by gun to the gunshot wound to the head on September 1, 2019, probably due to complications of him having cancer and, you know, being in pain and losing all of his mental faculties and hearing and vision. Well, if it, if it was suicide, and I know, you yes. know, uh, my friend Tom, Thomas here can talk a little bit about some of the, you know, the suspicions regarding the medical examiner who made that ruling, that there's certainly some cause to doubt, especially if Aquino was perhaps being, I don't know, a bit more candid lately than he ought to have been in the eyes of his, his ultimate handlers. Yes, certainly. I mean, Amy Hart, the medical examiner in the case uh, on the uh, death certificate, was uh, uh, had a long history of uh, uh, allegations of shoddy work, of uh, lying or, or and or framing uh, the facts to fit the uh, prosecutor's uh, story in various cases. In fact, she'd been forced to resign under a, under a cloud in 2014, and and uh, it was only um, uh, more recently that she had. Uh, uh, gotten her job back or got, gotten this job. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that the uh, medical examiner that would be uh, rubber stamping this death certificate and presumably overseeing the investigation would uh, be somebody who was known to be corrupt, known for shoddy work, somebody who could probably even be kind of leaned on to, uh, to uh, you know, kind of tailor the story the way they need, needed it to be tailored. I can see that, Thomas, for sure. Um, so in closing in this video, uh, he claimed he talked to Thomas, uh, that Thomas talked to Aquino for only 10 minutes. Uh, Thomas claims Aquino is connected to the Zodiac killer says there's a expert with a book coming out. That's going to have all this information, but doesn't say what the book is, or whom the expert is. He says Aquino is not an expert in Egyptology, where in the interview, he praised him for being expert in Egyptology. He once defended Aquino, which I mentioned earlier, and said that he was not a Satanist, but he was a Sethian. But in this video, discusses Aquino in the Temple of Satan and discusses the Temple of Set is evil. Discusses the, uh, the Temple of Set, Aquino, and human sacrifice and alleged connections to killings in Kentucky and Aquino in the Temple of Set. So it seems that as of December 13, 2020, um, Schoenberger, for whatever reason, had a quote-unquote change of heart about Aquino. Um, so, yeah, that's all I got, unless you guys have anything else to add to that. Well, that was lovely, John. All right, to uh, wrap up your segment here, you've uh, looked a little bit into uh, Colonel Aquino's uh, connections to the Flat Earth community. Uh, do tell us what you've turned up, please. Yes. Uh, so um, there was a YouTube channel called Breaking the Spells, um, and it had um, uh, K-Sharp and Carlos Sharp uh, was the two uh, people on the channel. Now, there were allegations going around that Carlos Sharp, who also named himself Commandante Carlos, uh, who appeared briefly on many Flat Earth channels, um, uh, if I remember correctly, between 2015 and 2016, um, uh, and he would always show up wearing like just the weirdest, like one time he showed up wearing like an anarchy mask and he was on Omni Eris's channel too as well. 
Um, and there were rumors going around that K Sharp was Lilith um, uh, Butch Aquino and Commandante Carlos was um, Colonel Michael Aquino, allegedly. Um, if you watch the videos, it does appear to me um, that uh, K Sharp, I don't believe her to be Lilith. However, I do believe that it is very much possible that Colonel Michael Aquino was, with a voice modulator, uh, Commandante Sharp, uh, because they do look to be within age. Uh, and there are many facial markings that do look like um, that they do seem to be the same person. Now, supposedly, when K Sharp and Carlos Sharp were um, questioned about being the Aquinos, uh, their defense allegedly was that, well, no, we're not them. We're just their neighbors in California. That's very odd. It's very odd that one would say that. Um, also, allegedly, uh, one of the uh, um, uh, uh, people that were in the Flat Earth community, Patricia Steer, uh, mentioned that Lilith um, and Michael Aquino would not leave her alone and that that um, they were always uh, uh, pestering her. Uh, Mark Sargent, who's also a member of the Flat Earth community as well, interviewed uh, Commandante Carlos Sharp. Um, so when you're watching Carlos Sharp, again, it looks like some sort of psychological, psychographical operation going on. The Sharps also own German Shepherds. Uh, which uh, Lilith and, and, and Colonel Michael Aquino were very fond of. Who knows if it was their German Shepherds or if it was their neighbors, the Aquino's German Shepherds. I, I don't know. Um, and again, I, I spent hours researching this stuff. Um, it was brought to the attention by my friend, Jesse Spots. Um, again, I don't know what to make of all of it. It's extremely interesting. Uh, during the time period, uh, Jesse had made a video discussing Aquino's paper on um, uh, on uh, on um, uh, uh, Star Wars and Jedi Knights, and Aquino actually made a YouTube can YouTube um, comment uh, uh, replying to Jesse. Of course, Jesse Spots himself was a member of the Flat Earth community, uh, and in his his comment, he wrote. Neat video. I don't mind having my intellectual feet held to the fire when it's done thoughtfully. Smiley face emoji. For your information, the dark side was subsequently revised and expanded again. It's now both printed in Kindle ebook form as Fire Force. The look inside feature on the book's paperback page is somewhat scrambled, but on the Kindle page contains a complete preface as well as General Dakar's technical commentary. I'll defer story commentary to that since it does better. Of course, Dakar be Star Wars work before. Fire Force also contains as one of its appendices the complete secret of the Lost Ark in case you wonder what happened to it after it got nailed into that crate. As to your question about Jedi, I didn't invent the term. George Lucas borrowed it from the Jedi Knights of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Martian novels. Amusingly, in the 1980s, the US, U.S. Army did play with neurolinguistic programming in an experiment called Project Jedi. Watch, if you're curious, you can read about it in my Mind War book. Since you were curious about the detailed description of the application of the force to control others, this technique is described in detail in Mind War as one of the psychons, psychological controls. 
oh, and I haven't been a Satanist since 1975. I'm a priest of the ancient Egyptian god Set. Smiley face. Now, also during this time period as well, which is very interesting, Aquino stated supposedly that he converted to Christianity. I don't believe that to be true. But still, nonetheless, I do have to mention it. So Aquino was um, supposedly interacting with the Flat Earth community, even if the Sharps, uh, if Kathleen is not Lilith, and uh, allegedly, and Carlos Sharp is not uh, Aquino, allegedly. I would say that there's more evidence to point to Carlos Sharp or Commandante Sharp allegedly being Michael Aquino, more so than Lilith Aquino being uh, K Sharp. Um, but it's still interesting nonetheless. And I don't think many people really dig into this or really even knew about this at the time. Uh, there's probably some more information that to be dug around if anybody looks. I mean, tangentially, when you search on Google, if you use quotation marks to refine the Boolean logic of the search, you can find where this was discussed at different parts and periods during 2014 to 2016 that Aquino was around these flat earth networks and interacting with these people. Even if you take the Commandante Sharp Aquino link between breaking the spells and the Aquinos away. Um, it's just interesting that he was, again, you can link Aquino not only to the flat earth community, but to the QAnon operation. And it's not difficult to do so. So that's all I got, unless anybody else has any interesting. Uh, oh, I mean, it's analogy. it's just really, you know, fascinating. I mean, already what we've kind of uh, gone over. And of course, you know, you have to sort of go back. And I mean, keep in mind that Aquino was involved with Church of Satan way back in the day and then set up the Temple of Sets. I mean, he already had years of interacting with this sort of occult underground as well and then um certainly by the uh you know the 21st century and the rise of the internet i mean he really seems to become involved with a lot of uh interesting characters uh, and i do have to say one thing one one quick k sharp has denied that she's lilith aquino that carlos sharp is michael aquino i do have to make that known but it's still, again, it is weird that they said that they're neighbors of the Kinos. That's just, it's just an odd thing to say. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and the funny thing, too, you know, you mentioned the affinity for German shepherds that yeah, quote-unquote neighbors and Kinos themselves had, and that's very emblematic of the process church of the final judgment, which, you know, first shows up in a lot of these you know, in the background of a lot of these different cases, allegedly the background of the Charles Manson case, he was undoubtedly influenced by them to at least some degree, although it's obviously questioned how much of that is true. And same with the Son of Sam killings as well, which we brought up earlier in this uh, show. And of course, we can't forget that the process was literally incorporated in New Orleans in 1968 by Thomas Jude Baumler, you know, one of these creepy figures working out of Guy Bannister's office, you know, part of these, this whole New Orleans-based intelligence network that I'm sure Thomas Myrtle can also say quite a bit about. And, you know, this whole thing, you know, to see that, see that commonality with the process is yet another indicator of how much sort of ideology and iconography is shared between all of these different uh, satanic groups, certainly. Uh, yeah, certainly. And uh, Bannister's office, yeah, would be a... Uh... A uh, perfect example of how this uh, occult underground, uh, and in some way, you know, these uh, 
uh, satanic and quasi-satanic groups are also interfacing with the extreme, uh, you know, Catholic and quasi-Catholic organizations. It all kind of converges in the Bannister office along with the multiple intelligence agencies, uh, the uh, oft-overlooked Office of Naval Intelligence, which was uh, actually one of the forces behind uh, Bannister's office, and then uh, various uh, public and private uh, donors, uh, including the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission and uh, the even uh, the local uh, local powers like H.L. Hunt and Leander Perez, you know, you had this just uh, this uh, menagerie, as it's been called, of uh, of uh, wealthy uh, ultra right uh, figures who were probably vehicles for financing these stay behind net- networks. A lot of them, you know, the Hunt family specifically are connected with the American volunteer group, para- paramilitary group involved, you know, with the camp in in uh, California. But yeah, but you know, to uh, Aquino's uh, links to all of this and a lot of what we've been pointing out up to this point just uh, paints this picture for me of uh, how uh, special operations and uh, the stay behind the networks involved with stay behind armies and covert operations, uh, unconventional warfare uh, being targeted at foreign populations is then brought home and targeted at the U.S. population. You know, the Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, I mean, that's really all of these major news organizations serve the same function in a clandestine level, you know, and of course it's uh, quite interesting that, uh, you know, uh, that uh, Aquino's co-author of Mind War would be appearing so regular, uh, regularly on Fox uh, when, you know, this is somebody who's authored a paper about using the news media as a vehicle for mass scale mind control. And then they are themselves a personality on uh, the, the major news media. So it just shows the, those ty- types of connections and, and uh, I think that you'll find as well, you know, with all of these alternative media communities, counterculture, what have you, you know, that uh, a lot of uh, a lot of us are constantly targeted by this by this kind of uh, ongoing program of psychological warfare. You know, that where uh, it really is warfare, and uh, with the personalities involved, make that quite clear. Yeah, and it's it's important to un- emphasize as well. Um, you know, I mean, I know a lot of people, it may not necessarily seem obvious why uh, you would see so many connections between psychological warfare officers and special operations forces, uh, but they are very closely interconnected. I mean, both are essentially key components of unconventional warfare and covert operations. Um, you know, when you look in a foreign situation, I mean, it's great to uh, send, you know, special operations forces into, you know, Yemen or something like that. And, kill you know i mean a commander on the ground or blow up uh you know a camp or something like that uh but unless you have psi war officers there to sort of frame that uh, to the local population and also here i mean to the uh, domestic population i mean these uh, actions alone you know don't have the same uh, impact that they otherwise would so uh you know they have to work frequently integrically with each other in terms of these you know one hand the special operators uh doing what they do in the field and then the psi war officers adding context to it for uh consumption of the uh different audiences be they foreign or domestic so there is this very close relationship to all of these things it's true and, and it's true and i would i would argue as well that uh, that a lot of uh, warfare is in a sense uh, directly connected to psychological warfare in terms of the psychological impact uh, that uh, that they are uh, 
looking to uh, inflict uh, on a target population, special operations, uh, assassinations, stay behind armies, high-tech weapons systems to burn down cities. You know, these are all things that are not only uh, warfare, but are also psychological warfare in the sense of uh, the uh, profound effect that they're having on the target of, uh, population's uh, psyche, you know, which is, uh, recalls a, a, a line in uh, uh, John Mark's uh, The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, uh, which uh, I often uh, think back to. This uh, line uh, discusses how some MKUltra projects were intended to maximize stress on whole societies and how they would deal with uh, macro uh, shocks and micro shocks, the shock events, kind of like uh, the shock doctrine, you know, and shock and awe. And uh, this was all about basically uh, trauma based mind control, but instead of uh, uh, targeting an individual, they're targeting an entire community or country. And uh, I think that is very much involved with uh, what people like Aquino are are all about and also what's being done inside the United States and in the, the large, largely in the so-called free world. Yeah, and one last thing I want to mention too um, about the Sharps is they also claim that they weren't partners, uh, that they were also neighbors to as well, which is interesting enough. Um, I don't know what to make about the whole thing. Supposedly there, there was a boat too that was that showed up that had spray painted or written on it that the, the, there was a flat earth revolution and Carlos Sharp was always discussing revolution and overthrowing the government and everything. So I don't know. The whole thing is just, it's just, it's bizarre. Um, I've tried to find more information. A lot of the streams don't exist anymore. Um, I don't know what to make about the whole thing, um, but I do know that Aquino at the very least, even if he isn't Commandante Sharp and the, he was someone else, he, you know, Commandante Sharp was a pseudonym or Carlos Sharp was a pseudonym, he was just someone else. Um, Aquino was interact, interacting with various members of the Flat Earth community. So, but that's all I got to say, closing to that. So if anybody has any more information, email me. We read the documents at protonmail.com on that. Um, and it was very obscure, but still. Yes, well, statement about there being uh, there there are neighbors is very bizarre, and it uh, kind of is a pattern that you see over and over again as well. You know these uh, uh, seemingly disparate uh, uh, kind of connections converging in these areas, streets. Uh, you find that people that uh, shouldn't be connected or are connected, but uh, turn out to be more closely connected than you think, based on. Uh, uh, at least, I mean, it's a circumstantial perhaps, but when you find people living around the corner from each other and you find a bunch of interesting people living on the same street, uh, kind of reminiscent too of the uh, Kennedy case in the New Orleans uh, investigation where uh, both of Clay Shaw's next door neighbors ended up working for NASA, as did a number of co-workers of Oswald's at uh, the Riley Coffee Company, which itself was somewhat of a CIA proprietary, the agency had interest in Riley Coffee Company going back, which is just a, kind of a glimpse into the surreal world in which we live. This coffee house is actually a CIA front to some extent, but uh, it, it, and it goes back to what we were discussing before about the uh, involvement of NASA facilities and also Atomic Energy Commission nuclear facilities like Los Alamos. I think often uh, similar to the special air, uh, special access programs that you deal with when you're looking at Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, these various defense giants, you have uh, the seat, you have uh, nuclear space defense uh, um, uh, type of uh, aerospace. These, these are actually uh, 
used as kind of a label uh, for other covert operations that are going on behind the scenes, such as mind control programs, and those are protected by the absolute secrecy that they're able to justify, uh, you know, with under under the um, under the kind of uh, um, under the under the banner of special access programs of space defense uh, and 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 that and that type of thing. So I think that's one reason why we see a lot of these NASA Atomic Energy Commission, Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, co-founded by Edward Teller, by the way, you know, all these all these types of uh, extremely sensitive facilities showing up over and over again, Oak Ridge, because uh, that those are ultimately the ideal vehicle for perpetrating some of the worst uh, uh, abuses, the, some of the worst uh, kind of the the, the most uh, sickening things that the national security state is doing because they can uh, provide a rational justification for the level of secrecy involved. So I think a lot of times NASA, AEC, all these other things are uh, actually might signify more than than what the, the what they would ostensibly seem to suggest. And uh, on, on one more note on that, it's uh, interesting with uh, respect to UFOlogy and everything, which again, you know, another another community that is targeted for psychological warfare over a long period of time, controlled by the intelligence apparatus, basically used in some respects, I think, as a pool of uh, experimentation. You have a lot of these abductees who, you know, per Martin Cannon's article and, and other work, you know, they fit a lot of the same, um, they, they, they fit the profile of people who have been in, in uh, uh, subjects in MK Ultra operations, I think to, you know, there's a significant percentage of that community that is related to that, uh, that, that, that their experiences are related to that. And I think that this UFOlogy movement and the psychological warfare around it, John Alexander, and these types of characters are ultimately managing these people over a long period, keeping an eye on them, keeping them controlled. Um, but uh, yeah, where I was going to with that, with that uh, UFO uh, tangent was uh, also just uh, going back to New Orleans again briefly, uh, Fred Lee Crisman uh, that uh, actually brought uh, Thomas Beckham, a garrison witness to Offutt and hit him there uh, uh, to, to the SAC facility. Uh, Crisman has uh, allegedly was doing work for the Atomic Energy Commission or had at least uh, applied to work for the Atomic Energy Commission, which had led to some theories that uh, the bizarre Maury Island incident might have been related to uh, dumping of toxic waste uh, in Washington state and that the Atomic Energy Commission sent Fred Lee Crisman to uh, to cover it up. But, you know, so, you, yeah, just just uh, uh, just just uh, very fascinating in that respect, how all of these bases and people always come up living next to each other and on the same streets. And it just hints at a uh, kind of a deeper organization to things than than uh, than uh, than you one would uh, believe, you know. It's it's uh, kind of reminds me from that quote uh, quote uh, about all of these NASA connections. Uh, uh, Jim Garrison wrote that uh, yeah, when you ever whenever you see all of these seemingly disparate individuals uh, moving uh, to the same uh, point to the same location uh, to the same place uh, as if controlled by some magnetic force, you know, the outlines of an intelligence operation start to become clear. Well, well, Thomas, one last thing is, is on Mark Sargent's show, Commandante Carlos was the International Space Station expert talking about valves in relation to space. Um, I mean, it's just interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I think space is used as a cover a lot for all kinds of uh, national security shenanigans, uh, all kinds of uh, types of activity, including the space weapons systems and stuff, which obviously ties us back to uh a lot of this stuff, you know, mass mind, 
mind control technologies and that type of uh, and and it's interesting too you know with respect to the flat earth the society i remember looking them up in london and finding uh that their office in london uh is or or at least was when i looked it up happened to be uh, uh just like five minutes from the infamous tavistock institute so i gotta check that again <laughs> you know quite interesting there yeah the whole space motif really i mean it, it amount that has come up just on the show really is uncanny and again you know the fact that Kathy O'Brien's book is accurately describing the extent to which NASA operations and fronts for a lot of this darker you know experimental you know unconventional weapons and you know, research activity is very fascinating and another mark in her favor and of course you know with the ufology connections you mentioned Paul Benassi's own account um, you know from back in when he was, you know, talking about his mind control experience, Adolf had even talked about how they would be simulating these alien abduction type experiences. So that was clearly a part of the program. And it gets back to what you were saying, Thomas, about the extent to which, you know, a lot, there's an overlap, it seems, between the mind control side of things and the UFO, you know, allegation side of things. And you know, that's really a weird world, you know, where truth seems stranger than fiction. And it becomes harder to discern what's even actually going on anymore and that's really the world that people like you know operate in yeah absolutely that's a kind of a this uh, world of sh the shadows you know your uh do you, you shadows uh, of shadows of shadows you know but uh these um and that brings up uh, uh something as well the uh uh experience that these abduction experiences and everything the connection to mind control brings us back to aerospace as well because there's definitely a connection there with the pattern of them seeing these uh, ufo phenomena and everything and, and obviously the two subjects are directly linked to a lot of the same people and institutions and so you have this connection to aerospace and once again special access programs coming back into the picture of mind control via uh, uh, the uh, phenomena that's been termed alien abduction all right, so uh, let's get in here to uh, Sam's section. All right, so Sam is going to tell us a bit about Aquino's involvement with the scene around Adam Parfrey and co. in the 1980s counterculture. Uh, but we have to set the stage a bit for that first. So uh, Sam, why don't you explain the uh, split between the Church of Satan and the Temple of Set for us here? Sure. Uh, maybe maybe let me briefly explain um, how Aquino got involved uh, with the Church of Satan. In um, the story goes, anyway, the legend. In 1969, he he first saw Anton Lavey at a screening of Rosemary's Baby in San Francisco, of course, <laughs> and said he was impressed by Lavey's entourage and, and whole milieu surrounding him. He didn't explicitly say that they met at that point, but I think his curiosity was piqued enough um, to where he you know, wanted to pursue an interest. So shortly after that, he was shipped to Vietnam uh, where he started writing this, I, I guess you might call it channeled text called the Diabolicon. And it, you know, it has the kind of religious verse that a lot of, of this stuff does. And he sent it to Anton LaVey, who was very impressed by it and, and said he would immediately incorporate aspects of it into the church and that he was granted membership, um, you know, while, while being over at Vietnam. Just interesting to note that, um, you know, Michael Aquino, while he was involved in psychological terror campaigns, you know, um, 
uh, terrorizing local Vietnamese with horrific sounds that he was writing this text, the Diabolicon, which is basically just a, uh, a long-winded um, appraisal of, of various demons um, for Satan. And so um, he, he quickly rose through the ranks in the Church of Satan, um, became a high priest and editor of the church's Cloven Hoof newsletter. Um, but he didn't like <clears throat> the direction the church was taking in 1975 when Anton LaVey decided that he would allow people to basically buy in. Um, Aquino was a purist with the church. He was very um, sincere and serious about his beliefs, probably much more so than LaVey, who, um, you know, in, in many respects was just kind of a, a, a showman who, who learned much from his days um, traveling around with carnivals and, and, and seeing the freak shows. I think to him, um, it, it, it was much more theater. That's not to absolve him and say that he wasn't involved um, in, uh, in sketchy stuff, because <laughs> he certainly was. But um, I, I think uh, Aquino did not like that, that Anton was kind of um, just allowing anyone to join uh, based on money. And LeVay was hard up for money at that time too. So uh, Aquino felt like this was a very hypocritical uh, stance for LeVay to take um, because <laughs> Uh, one of the reasons Aquino claims joining the Church of Satan was that it was such an ethical and moral um, system, and, and he was kind of uh, he was he was really disillusioned by um, Christianity's hypocrisy, is, is what he calls it. And, and so um, Aquino, in 1975, um, in a nocturnal midsummer working, he invoked the Prince of Darkness, who dictated to him. Uh, the Book of Coming Forth by Night, which is uh, hearkening back to the Egyptian Book of Coming Forth by Day. Um, and this is when Set appeared and differentiated himself from Satan. And, you know, Aquino, of course, is a megalomaniac, and, and he, he, he claims his lineage, um, you know, goes from Crowley, who initiated the, the Ion of Horus, in 1912, when, when Iwas appeared in, in the Egyptian tombs, uh, and then uh, LeVay initiated the, the Ion of Satan in um, uh, 60, whatever it was. And so um, the Ions were changing, and Aquino was solely responsible for that. <laughs> and so um, thus started the, the Temple of Set in 1975. Maybe it's important to just differentiate Aquino from LeVay. Levey was more focused on earthly self-gratification in the here and now. Um, he was very Epicurean, um, you know, believed in satiating desire. And, you know, um, although he was, he was very against drugs, which is interesting to note, um, he was very opposed to the hippie counterculture of the 60s, which he felt um, was, was just very, very self-indulgent to, but with no purpose. Right. Um, Aquino, on the other hand, believes man is more than an animal and hence not subject to, to its laws and, and that he should transcend, the, that man was meant to transcend. Levey was a materialist to whom Satan was personification of the forces of nature. Aquino was more of a, a platonic idealist 
um, basing his theology on Plato and the Gnostic Hermetic tradition. Kino was certainly more um, interested in ceremonial ritual magic. Um, I would say LeVay, for LeVay, it was much more so theater and a means to just impress people and, and get more followers. Um, so, yeah, so the Temple of Set was formed and in regards to how it relates to Adam Parfrey and, and his milieu, Adam Parfrey, from what I know, had no direct uh, relationship with Aquino. Adam wasn't really even interested in Satanism. I think for him, it was, it was as much a business venture as, as it was a philosophical interest in the day. Um, you have to remember the late 80s was the satanic panic. It was a very controversial time to be associated with LeVay uh, and anything like that. So um, Adam, Adam was pretty keen to, to you know, how, how negative attention can, can uh, really be used to just provoke. And I, I would say more often than not, that was, that was his motivation was to kind of um, trigger and, and provoke um, the culture. And so, um, so in relation to Adam, I think a crucial element is this, when Zena LeVay, Anton's daughter and Nicholas Schreck left the Church of Satan. This was, um, I mean, this, this was symbolic of many forks, but um, so maybe just a, a brief history on, on, on before that. Zena and Adam had a brief fling um, pretty much a one night stand on Adam's birthday in 1987. Uh, and it wasn't really much more than that. What's interesting to note, I, I spoke with Zena and, and she told me that her father would kind of, um, you know, want her to, to do reconnaissance on certain men. And the, the impression I got was, was that he, he wanted her to sleep with certain men and, and then tell, tell him what the experience was like. And, and you know, maybe her, her goal was to, to kind of steal secrets, so to speak, because Anton had just published um, the, Com the Complete Witch, uh, which was the first book Feral House ever published. And, and so I, I just found that anecdote interesting. Zena and Adam's relationship was very short-lived and um, not much more became of it, although, um, one of actually before feral house was founded adam published uh, the manson file which was a book of writings by from charlie manson and the book was you know in a way kind of defending a lot of his philosophy especially um what was called atwa his supposedly hippie nature lover philosophy it, atwa stands for air um air trees water and I can't remember what the last one was, but um, uh, Nicholas Schreck put that, or helped put that book together. And Nicholas Schreck also produced a documentary called Charles Manson Superstar, which um, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it, it's, you know, basically building up Charles Manson to be the kind of outlaw shaman of our time. And, uh, Shrek was very sympathetic to, to Manson as, as a kind of martyr, and uh, he really believed in a lot of his uh, philosophies and 
interviewed him many, many, many times in prison. They were pretty close friends. And so when the Manson file came out, um, you know, um, that's, that's kind of when Adam got involved with, with Shrek and, and, and thereby Zena. And then they stayed in touch. And um, when the Complete Witch came out, Zena was basically um, told, um, because I don't even think she was paid for this. She told me she wasn't paid. She was just asked to go around on all these various talk shows and advertise the Church of Satan and defend it in, um, you know, against these accusations of, of child sexual abuse, ritual sacrifice and all this stuff. Because it was, you know, of course, a very controversial time to be a Satanist. So, um, at, you know, Adam put out this book right around this time. And I don't think it was necessarily his idea. Um, maybe him and Anton cooked it up together, but the publicity was, was um, I, I don't know if anyone's seen these shows, it, it's kind of clownish, you know, um, it wasn't just shows like Geraldo and the, the Jesse Raphael show. There was also Bob Larson was another one who was kind of a, a you know, a TV Christian personality who was definitely a grifter, um, shady guy in his own right, um, who uh, I was told behind the scenes was actually pretty good friends with a lot of the, the people he was supposedly against on, on air. Uh, people like Boyd Rice, I was told, you know, were, were quite good friends with um, Bob Larson off air. But um, so during this time, she's going around doing all these uh, media performances unpaid it doesn't get royalties on the book she's you know becoming pretty upset by this because she's getting all kinds of threats um and was you know followed and claims it was a pr pretty traumatic time for her and you know it's interesting i she was very we spoke for over three hours and there were there were parts of our conversation where i i did really feel bad for her i i that, you know, she explained growing up in the Church of Satan, you know, before the age of 10, she was witnessing orgies and, um, you know, that was just normal to her. Um, <laughs> and so, of course, that's going to, you know, affect a person. But anyway, so so Zena was very uh, upset about this, about being used, you know, basically uh, as a puppet to to promote these books and defend the church when, you know, um, she was becoming... Uh, more and more hostile to it and how she was being treated. And so um, there was a sharp split. I think it was maybe 89 or 90, very end of the 80s. Um, Zena and Nicholas um, basically abruptly left the United States for Germany and renounced their membership of the Church of Satan and um, wrote this, this kind of um, screed against um, Anton LaVey, and it was called um, the myth, let's see, um, Anton LaVey, the, the myth and legend. And it was basically just um, demystifying uh, Anton LaVey. Um, there was, they sourced a lot of research done by Lawrence Wright, who was a reporter on assignment for Rolling Stone to document LaVey. And he found all kinds of inconsistent inconsistencies and claims that had no basis. For example, LaVey's rendezvous with Marilyn Monroe, his job as a police photographer, also the Satanic Bible 
was largely paraphrased, paraphrased from segments of, of uh, Ragnar Redbird's Might is Right and Crowley's Machian Keys. And another myth they, they uh, exposed was that LeBay was a technical advisor to Rosemary's baby. Um, there's, there's no evidence of that. It was just something he claimed. Um, and it was also claimed that he played the devil in Rosemary's Baby, which Adam kind of told me, but in this way where he wasn't sure if it was true or not. Um, and so, um, you know, this, this action of Zena and Nicholas um, caused a, a pretty severe schism in the Church of Satan, especially because they soon after decided to join the Temple of Set. Uh, which is quite interesting, you, you know, um, Aquino splits from Anton, founds his own satanic church, more or less, um, and, and Zena and Nicholas do the same. And uh, let's see, where are we? Um, yeah, so, you know, this is where it gets into the kind of um, creepy Nazi stuff, which is, um, I can get into if, if now's a good time. Yeah, go for it soon. Okay. Um, so, you know, there were interestingly a lot of splinter orders within the, the Temple of Set, which I, I kind of just recently realized. And one of them was called the Order of the Trapezoid, um, which is quite mysterious. And uh, the, the origin story is even more mysterious. Um, it was in 1982, I believe. Um, Aquino, when he, interestingly, when he was an attache for the UN, um, like this is on record, um, uh, it was at this time that he, he went to an ancient medieval castle uh, called the Babelsberg Castle. And it's in uh, Westphalia, Germany. And um, it is, uh, okay, I'm, I'm just gonna read from the Order of the Trapezoid website. On October 19th, 1982, my, Dr. Michael Aquino, high priest, da, 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 took the thought experiment to Walhalla, the subterranean inner sanctum of the Babelsberg Castle in the storied Westphalia region. This was the site where another experiment had gone awry, where the positive aspects of German romanticism, dynam, dynamism, life worship, irrationality, artistic alchemy, and xenophilia, had tragically become the tools of totalitarianism, ne negative tribalism, and brutal acts committed on a mass scale. Here, basically apologizing for <laughs> Nazis. Um, Dr. Aquino performed the rite at Babelsburg to recapture the positive elements of this romantic stream from the place where the dark arts of the North were last attempted. There, he combined this stream with that of Lovecraftian expressionism um, a genre with which he was familiar, having previously served as LeVay's left-hand man in the Church of Satan, and having written, interestingly, The Ceremony of the Nine Angles and The Call to Cthulhu as contributions to the Satanic Rituals in 1972, um, which, to my knowledge, is the first mention of the Nine Angles, um, you know, obviously referencing... Hey, Samuel. That. Yeah. Real quick, I wanted to make note that in Pillow Talk 322, uh, Michael Aquino gives a story about how George Patton IV, Council National Policy member, gives him a ceremonial dagger when he leaves him to go to the Presidio and makes an off-color joke 
about, hey, good luck trying to find any virgins to sacrifice with this ceremonial dagger. Wow. Well, the, the thing is, he used that dagger in the rituals. That's correct, yes. At uh, Babelsberg. And, and there is a video of that. Um, I haven't seen it. I don't want to see it. Um, but, you know, this castle has an interesting history. Um, it's a medieval castle, but um, during World War II, Himmler, Heinrich Himmler, um, uh, got a lot of money to <clears throat> refurbish it, I think 15 million francs, and hired, um, you know, used um, uh, workers from concentration camps to do it. And it was basically a manifestation of his uh, occult obsessions, um, you know, with uh, the old gods. Um, Heinrich Himmler was, was, you know, one of the the most notorious occultists in, in Hitler's Third Reich. And, and so, you know, there, there, this room that Aquino does this ritual in, I mean, it's like, it has the black sun symbol in the middle of it, and there's these 12 pillars around it. Um, <laughs> it's quite a striking image. And, you know, um, to think that he was doing this in there, starting a splinter of the Temple of Set while he was an attache of the UN, just, just boggles the mind. Um, and, and what's just more fascinating is that, you know, the military was well aware of, of his beliefs and, and even apologized for him during the Presidio affair, um, you know, it kind of, and, and he claimed that, that it was just a, a witch hunt against him. That he was this victim. Um, when he's doing stuff like this, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just um, really crazy. So um, to continue, the order of the trapezoid um, is essentially, I haven't gone deeply into it, but um, my understanding is it's kind of like a chivalric order for the Temple of Set. Um, so almost like a secret society within Temple of Set and only the most noble Setians would, would be admitted into the order of the trapezoid. And uh, yeah, so, so that's, that's that. And, um, you know, interesting, you know, figures adjacent to Adam Park would become involved uh, with the order of the trapezoid because, um, was it in, let's see, I think 94, Aquino left as head of the Order of the Trapezoid and uh, a man named Stephen Flowers, AKA Eldred Thorson took over, who is kind of a runic scholar, um, quote unquote academic, but is, is very much involved in the kind of heathen, pagan, um, you know, Nordic. Are he and Michael Moynihan, uh, Moynihan collaborated on a book, right? Yes, they did. They wrote The Secret King. Mm, that's um, right about one of uh, Himmler's like favorite occultists, right? Yes, yeah, Carl Maria Willigut. Yeah, and um, yes. yeah, that book, you know, it kind of tries to demystify Nazi occultism, um, uh, but uh, I, I would say it, it's more so trying to defend their interest in it <laughs> because it's very overt, especially with Stephen Flowers, Eldred Thorson. He, he's not shy about it. Um, he he was very much interested in. And what they were doing back then, and you know, is is in essence, I would say, carrying it out with his work with the Order of the Trapezoid. Um, it kind of came out. He was very much 
was involved in the pagan heathen movement and they didn't know he was in the temple of set and when that when that came out there was this um you know they, they almost tried to cancel him i guess uh and there was you know kind of a schism within heathen paganism because not all of it is racialist um but i would say the flavor that he was interested um in was very very much uh racial tribalist um yeah so yeah he he took over the order of the trapezoid until no it was 87 to 95 um and then yeah i'm not sure who took over but you know he he goes way back with the, the temple of set as well um and uh yeah <laughs> lots of figures adjacent to parfrey kind of get in this milieu of, of esoteric nazism um, and I could go on, but, it, you know, we want to keep it um, adjacent to Aquino and, uh, you know, Shrek, I guess I'll just go back to Shrek. He ended up forming his own splinter of, of the, the Temple of Set called the Sethian Liberation Movement. And um, so this is kind of a hodgepodge personal enlightenment pathway that uses Tantra and meditation practices with Seth for disaffected cultists and occultists who had quote unquote, unresolved anger and hostility issues. I, I, so from a Vice interview, Sina, uh, who is also involved in Sethian Liberation Movement, um, says that uh, SLM teaches, quote, drug addicts, child stars, religion-based cult members, and from sects like Jehovah's Witnesses, or members of the Iranian market, Marxist political groups. Uh, essentially, so it's like a deprogramming de place for <laughs> cultists by, um, you know, Sethians. So I found that really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the, the splinter groups you see with all, you know, with all these satanic organizations is kind of uncanny, you know, tracing the lineage all the way back, you know, the, OTO to Scientology, you know, the Church of Satan to the Temple of Set to all these different splinters you talk about, you know, it's, it, it is remarkable, really, and that, of course, you know, regardless of whatever personal, interpersonal divides, you know, come between these people, that they still seem to be advancing more or less the same ideology, the same types of programming, that they're still all kind of working to a common goal in a weird way, even though they appear to be split off. I just always found that curious as well with a lot of these groups. It's like, yeah. we, you know, and, we, well, it's like we kind of talked about before, George, you know, sort of going back to the, you know, uh, grandfather of them all, the Mormons, you know, and sort of their relationship with a lot of the fundamentalist uh, Mormon sects, which really, you know, frankly, operate like a glorified criminal enterprises in a lot of cases. I mean, with the LeBaron family and some of the other ones, um, you know, essentially, it's a way, I think, for... Um, the mainline churches to kind of keep their hands clean and let some of these, you know, fringe off sex uh, do the dirty work and then they can easily disavow them and say, well, you know, it wasn't us. It was just these other kooks. Right. Well, I was just going to say, I think the link between all of these splinter groups is, is what I would call the left-hand path. And, you know, to basically sum it up, it's, you know, um, well, the opposite of the right-hand path of magic, which, you know, um, uh, is, is very all about love and, 
and, and light, right? A, a lot, the kind of new age um, stereotype would, would describe that pretty well. And the, and the left-hand path is, you know, unabashedly interested in um, the kind of shadow side of life. Um, in Kabbalistic terms, it's the clip off. It, it's the, the reverse of the tree of life. It's, it's um, you know, a, a kind of inversion of light and, and in practice, it's being involved in things like um, ritual sacrifice and child abuse. I mean, the worst of the worst. And I do think that this, this um, ideology goes really, really far back. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. They're always trying to tie it back to Egypt. And I, I just realized that with, with Aquino claiming that he was initiating the, the ion of set. Like, I didn't know he was that grandiose and what he was uh, claiming, you know. And I find it really interesting what you guys just talked about in your round table about Aquino possibly being the moon child of, uh, of uh, Parsons and or Hubbard and, um, and uh, well, Aquino's mom, I guess. <laughs> Uh, that was yeah. just, you know, yeah, I, I, and Parsons, of, of course, and Hubbard being preeminent um, practitioners of the left-hand path. I mean, Crowley, of, of course. I, mean, I, I would say that is the thread that, that ties all these different groups together, is um, they, they willingly practice evil. Right, and you know, as long as you have added your commonality, no matter how many times you splinter, you can't really veer too far from the same kind of practices I feel like I mean the, the other commonality too you know it seems that almost all of these major left-hand path practitioners just keep on appearing to be linked to intelligence from you know Crowley who was known to be have been an asset of British intelligence and likely you know German intelligence as well to L. Ron Hubbard who is reportedly was an office of naval intelligence asset you know the intelligence connections I've already mentioned with the process uh, church and corporation as well, which is a, you know, an alleged splinter from Scientology, except in other, as I mentioned on the previous roundtable, was also mentioned in some FBI documents just being the sort of strong arm of Scientology, suggesting like what Rick Luce was saying, that these splinter groups often just do the dirty work of these, you know, these seemingly you new know, original groups. And then with LaVey and Aquino, there's even also some cause for doubt about how genuine their split really was and that I mean, obviously, Aquino never veered too far from the whole you know, pursuit of pleasure thing. If he was all, you know, willing to, you know, I mean, abuse all these children and very clearly through all these cases be a pedophile. And of course, as well, there are just some curious, you know, correspondences with the fact that while Aquino was serving as a space intelligence officer in the early 90s in Colorado Springs, that LaVey was reportedly in Colorado Springs as well in the same area, maybe even adjacent to some of these military bases for an unexplained reason, you know, the, you know, the comp, you know, the correspondence you see is very, very fascinating too. And then of course, as you were pointing out, Sam, the fact that the, I mean, the fact that uh, Nicholas Schreck was sort of a Manson apologist in a way, you know, that again gets back to a lot of these previous, you know, a lot of these earlier groups had various influences on Manson, the process, the Church of Satan, where two of Manson's followers actually came from the Church of State in orbit, both Susan Atkins and Bobby Beausoleil, you know, it seems like, you know, again, you know, there's like a big web of these different groups and there may be personality disputes to some degree, but again, it's really kind of, you know, shared, they have a shared interest in the left-hand path and often a shared 
intelligence background too. Absolutely. And maybe in relation to, to Manson and Trek, um, one last thing I'll mention, this, this involves Parfrey directly. Um, uh, in 1988, on August 8th, 88, um, they performed uh, kind of performance ritual, which is the anniversary of, of Sharon Tate's murder. And it was in the Strand Theater in San Francisco. Um, Adam Parfrey, Nicholas Schreck was there, Zena LeVay, Boyd Rice, um, Evil Wilhelm from Radio Werewolf, Werewolf and a uh, um, bunch of others figures adjacent to this milieu. And, and you know, in, dressed in black, basically conducted this uh, ritual to, to honor the anniversary of Sharon Tate's murder. And uh, supposedly the, the argument was to raise funds for a retrial for, for Manson, who was unfairly convicted. Um, but I, you know, I just found that like a, a very overt um, ritual uh, and ceremonial way of, of kind of continuing this, this um, uh, legacy of, of uh, you know, whatever we want to call it from Manson um, through the 80s and, and onward. And if I can interject here for a moment too, sort of going back to Aquino's time in Colorado and Colorado Springs in the 90s, it's also um, interesting because um, during the time in the 90s as well, Boyd Rice also ended up in Denver um, along with uh, Tracy Twyman. Actually, this was around the time that they were doing Diggerbutt's Revenge. And um, certainly in this era, Tracy Twyman did promote a lot of this, you know, kind of holy bloodlines type stuff. Um, and kind of quasi-fascistic uh, ideology and so forth um, was uh, certainly tied in with that whole kind of milieu. So, um, yeah, that is fascinating. Um, one little thing I guess I'll drop, because uh, we'll be getting into this in a future podcast that'll be out uh, very soon, is the individual who had suggested that Tracy should look up Boyd Rice and uh, thus began her journey into this sort of quasi-Nazi Satanism. And uh, that person was Kevin Coogan. Uh, really? Yes, yes, yes. The uh, <laughs> longtime, re the uh, famous parapolitical researcher, author, dreamer of the day, had infiltrated the LaRoche organization um, and yes, was palling around with paraphrase people in this uh, era attempting to infiltrate them as well. So, yeah, that's interesting. I'll be interested to hear about that. He, he comes up, he's a figure that comes up in my book. And, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I don't quite know what to make of him. Um, seems like a double agent. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, him and Adam did not get along. Let's sum it up that way. Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, we're going to get into Kevin Coogan a lot in an upcoming show here. And uh, one final point I want to make here about what you guys are talking about with the notion of these cults. Um, you know, I think a compelling answer to some of this can be found in the, uh, the Sola Busca Tarot, uh, which is one of the earliest uh, tarot decks uh, that's uh, currently around. It dates uh, to the 15th century and uh, came out of the uh, Venetian uh, thing, you know, Vienna and the whole uh, black nobility and that kind of thing. Uh, so anyway, the whole thing with this deck, it's very strange. Um, 
there have been some theories put forward to it, and I would highly recommend picking up a copy of The Game of Saturn by Peter Mark Adams, uh, which is a really compelling account of it. But effectively, it, it uh, argues very compellingly that the uh, cards illustrate um, a kind of theory that was practiced among the Black nobility uh, during the Renaissance, where essentially they would invoke uh, possession, a kind of uh, process of drawing down the moon as we would think of it now, uh, where essentially you're bringing the demiurge down uh, incidentally through the uh, different patterns of the, uh, of the planets and so forth. So there is this sort of um, kind of aspect of astrognosis, if you will, behind all of this. But the thing about the deck, too, that I think is important to point out is there's also a very strong military theme to it. And uh, as Adams kind of argues compellingly in it, uh, the deck was probably used by a figure who uh, was a very prominent mercenary in Italy uh, during this era and had spent a good portion of his life uh, involved and these uh, campaigns with mercenary armies and so forth. And the deck uh, has some very horrendous uh, images. In fact, one of the Trumps actually does appear to uh, depict child sacrifice, or at least that is one interpretation of it. Uh, now, again, this is essentially showing a left-hand path um, theory where one is inviting possession as opposed to something that we would kind of uh, think of more as like astral projection, where one is ascending through uh, the cosmos uh, to return to the Godhead. But uh, effectively, the reason why you would do this is to attain earthly power. And if you're, say, a military commander, well, that makes a lot of sense. And that's uh, potentially why the Black nobility would have been interested in this kind of stuff. So uh, who knows, you know, there was more than one deck, uh, some of the cards, remnants of them. There's only one uh, deck left that we actually have a full set of, but uh, there have been some cards found in other capitals of Europe, such as London. So who knows, maybe there are remnants of this uh, kind of thing. It is uh, interesting. And this is something I've talked about with a lot of guests before, but you do see this military aspect of a lot of these cults. You know, a lot of these guys seem to have been tied up with that. And uh, as you guys are kind of alluding to specifically, it is a lot of this left-hand path kind of stuff that you see in a military level. Yeah, like one other just instance of it to quickly go into, and you know, Sam was talking about the uh, order of the trapezoid, which is sort of like this inner circle within the Temple of Set. And there are allegations still unconfirmed that a figure who's also of interest to John, uh, you know, a guy by the name of Dr. Sid Seymour, who reportedly did, uh, you know, bio, you know, served in the military in the Korean War, and then did bio warfare, and you worked for various, you know, bio, biological and chemical facilities. Reportedly did bio warfare research. Certainly worked uh, in Indio, California, at the exact same time that this whole presence with uh, of Wack and Hud and these, you know intelligence operations were going on there that were doing biowarfare stuff. And Dr. Sid Seymour, who has all these connections, has been accused by, was accused by his daughter and also a couple other individuals of being a child molester. And uh, finally, and there is one report, you know, it's unconfirmed, but says that he was actually a senior member of the Order of the Trapezoid, which I always found very interesting and would, if it's true, would love to confirm sometime. And then also to John's interest, also said that he was a finder's cult 
member too. So yeah, there's a lot of uh, weird, these weird connections and often going back to these military and intelligence structures when you get right down to it. All right. Well, to wrap up, I wanted to address Aquino's role in molding alternative communities. As Sam has just illustrated for us, there was this weird intersection between Aquino and really fringe elements of the 1980s counterculture by decades end. You see all of these different people like Boyd Rice, Tracy Twyman, Nicholas Schreck, Michael Monaghan drifting into this scene. And then many of them ended up in the aptly named disinformation.com by the end of the 1990s. As we all know, disinfo.com has had a profound influence in shaping underground cultures throughout the knots, especially when it came to metaphysics and parapolitics. Elsewhere, Aquino himself personally plunged in ufology in a big way during the 21st century, even trolling the uh, fanboys on above top secret message board. Uh, also, his buddy Colonel John Aquino ended up there as well. Now, Above Top Secret has a very strange history, something that I'll be getting into in my forthcoming book. Trust me, it's a, it's a very interesting subject. So, to get to our conclusion here, what effect have, had, have all these shenanigans had on these alternative communities? George, do you want to start us off, sir? Sure, and although it's came much later by the end of Aquino's life. And of course, and the effect therefore is hard to really quantify. It's one of the more fast, really fascinating things that I found, which uh, John alluded to a bit early in the program about Aquino's presence in the 9-11 truth community, at least to some extent. And this really only seemed to manifest by about the end of his life, you know, in interviews around 2019. And, you know, for example, he went on a program with Miles Johnston on June 13th, 2019, and then talked about uh, his beliefs regarding 9-11 there and uh, I was you know it really blew me away to see the first time that you know Aquino says things with regard to 9-11 truth that would not at all be out of place in the conspiracy community and it's really part of the I think broader pattern of him trying to endear himself to that community which has gone on over the years pretty much as for as long as the World Wide Web has been a thing almost and you know he, he was openly on this program talking about how you know you know, his beliefs about exactly what happened, saying uh, it was the CIA and Mossad operation with help from MI6, talking about how, you know, all of the plane crashes were faked uh, with, you know, I believe with, you know, TV, you know, CGI type manipulation and that, you know, the actual planes were flown to some other location and then substitute, you know, you know, the victims were taken off and forced to record their statements and killed there, which I think is taken verbatim from a 9-11 truth researcher of a couple years ago. And, not to say automatically that all of this stuff is false because as you know, Thomas and I in particular have been talking recently about a lot of these aspects of 9-11 and there certainly is you know, many anomalies along the lines of what Aquino is discussing, which almost makes it seem even more weird uh, that he seems to be right on target with a lot of this, uh, a lot of the stuff or you know, is very much repeating exactly what the conspiracy community is saying. What also sticks out to me though, first and foremost is that uh, the way that he talks about 9-11's purpose and the motive is incredibly disinformational. You know, that he basically said, well, the purpose of it was so that we could make the U.S. go to war for Israel, which is kind of repeating that same kind of standard canard that, you know, the only beneficiary of the global war on terror was Israel, that there's absolutely no 
interests here in the US, you know, no corporate interests here, no imperialists here that could have any motive other than uh, you know, supporting Israel, which is, uh, I mean, it's common to see in the alternative community, but it's absolutely untrue. And really just trying to make it seem as if, you know, it's just Israel and Zionism that's the one big bad and there's no other forces out there worth exploring. So it's uh, interesting to see Aquino promulgating that particular mythos. The, the, vast, then, the vast connections, George, between various groups, both in the United States and the United Kingdom and Switzerland and, and, and Russia, um, right. the Vatican, you know, no, 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 only, only Israel and Zionism, only that, so. Yeah, so you can see, you know, this is a standard narrative in the conspiracy world that kind of not only shuts down a lot of the important inquiry, but also rather conveniently makes the community uh, be able to get flagged as anti-Semitic and then shut down and cast as something that's not even worth looking at. So leave it to Michael Aquino to be pushing that. And we're not we're not saying that you don't talk about, you know, Israel and Mossad's connections to 9-11, which are definitely there. But the harp to say that they are the only actors involved in it and the in the pushing for the war on terror is disingenuous as well. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, too, which I you know, particularly have to credit uh, Thomas for noticing when he was watching this video, too, after I sent it, that Aquino really sounds like sounded like he was describing the operation as if it was something that he knew backwards and forwards, and even potentially as if he had a role in it. And Thomas, do you want to talk more about that? Sure. I mean, the first time I uh, had heard it when you sent the video, I found it uh, extremely creepy. I got a very uncomfortable listening to him describe uh, uh, his uh, quote unquote theory as if he was just giving this report on an operation that he'd been personally involved with. Now, of course, uh, as you mentioned, uh, it appears that many of the specific claims uh, were lifted from uh, another uh, researcher uh, slash author, uh, uh, Rebecca Roth. So uh, we can take it uh, with some some grain of salt for sure, you know, the uh, but uh, at, the, at the least, it seemed like a, a kind of a, a, a a very strange way to present your uh, what 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 is uh, ostensibly supposed to be your speculation or your uh, viewing it what you're saying might have happened, but he's stating it as if it's a matter of fact and stating it very uh, uh, yeah you'd have to listen to it, but it, but it uh, I, I I do agree that that aspect of the Israel did it Israel as the sponsor of the whole attacks is kind of the disinformation. He includes some elements that have some uh that she has concludes some truth uh with some disinformation like every good disinformation operator he's a psychological warfare specialist he knows how to construct effective disinformation and as uh one of the things that they do is mix the truth with the uh false information and and i think that uh uh presenting israel as the uh, as the uh, whole of the motive and the and the, the sponsorship level of the attacks really is that key element of disinformation, really the most important element of disinformation, because it brings us back to kind of that QAnon idea of uh, the American military intelligence apparatus, the American system is good uh, or was good, and now it's been uh, usurped by this uh, foreign influence. And if we just get this foreign influence, uh, you know, it's a, that, that uh, that the uh, United States will become great again. It's very much along those lines, just, just like a lot of these theories that presented as uh, being solely this uh, external influence as opposed to uh, uh, something that goes uh, to the very foundations. Um, and I think that's what Aquino was trying to do and uh, a number of the other uh, intelligence-connected uh, personalities uh, like uh, 
Alan Zabrowski of the U.S. Army War College are trying to do when they kind of uh, push that angle uh, is, is that they're trying to externalize uh, the, the problem. Right. Or, you know, Philip Giraldi, I think from the American Conservative and Valerie Plame as well, the infamous you know, person who was outed by Karl Rove back during the George W. Bush year, the CIA operative who was outed. And, you know, they, they Phil Giraldi wrote and then uh, Valerie Plame retweeted this, you know, thing like America's Jews are be behind America's wars or something like that. And of course, there was the firestorm of, wow, you're an anti-Semite. But what was lost in that was that it's also just blatant I mean, disinformational garbage that, again, you try to make it look like it's just Israel that's the reason for all this stuff happening when there's so many more entities and factors beyond that. It seems that that's the common pastime of these military and intelligence figures, like you say, to make just, that impression. And like you said, too, it's the, yeah, the effect of uh, not only discrediting the 911, 9-11 uh, research at large uh, on the... Uh, the basis of uh, allegations of anti-Semitism, but then the unfairness of the kind of where you just by speaking about an Israeli connection, which like as John said, there there is uh, there are there are real Israeli intelligence connections to the attacks. Just uh, by talking to that, you get lumped in with these uh, with these uh, with these uh, with anti-Semitism and with these people that are pushing these agendas and everything like that. And the unfairness of that kind of divides the movement. It's like, oh well, you won't talk about. Uh, Israel now, so you're probably working for Israel. It's part of this uh, larger program that's happened with the 9/11 movement since really the outset of of the movement. I I, I prefer the term 911 research because there really is the unified movement itself was really an intelligence operation from the beginning, and one of the major uh, thrusts of that intelligence operation was uh, getting us in all of these uh, different camps, just fighting amongst each other, ourselves over. Uh, over uh, issues of uh, that really uh, that that really aren't the uh, aren't the aren't at the aren't at the core of it, you know. We, we could uh, it's always been frustrating to me why there's so much wrong with the 9/11 attacks, and we get hung up on all of these different things when we should really just be uh, unified in in uh, in uh, pushing the uh, in trying to undermine the official version because there's so much evidence that undermines the official version but instead they get everybody stuck into these little kind of colonies these little factions and mooring factions, and then manage these factions and have them fighting amongst themselves it's very much a copy of what they did at the, with the jfk assassination and that that uh, i believe was also uh, that that research community was also uh, kind of controlled or manipulated from the very outset so but uh, yeah very very fascinating to find uh, akino coming out uh, for 9-11 truth, apparently, right before uh, his uh, reported death. It's like, was there anything he wasn't, like, coming out for before his uh, alleged death? I mean, he had, like, flat earth, UFOs, 9-11 truth. Yeah. I guess it's other than the pedophile stuff, obviously, that he didn't. Well, that's the thing. Yeah, it's like he was willing to embrace everything except for the pedophile networks and except for the outright you know mind control stuff and uh it's kind of funny i mean I've, i think akino has often tried to distance himself by saying you know oh mk ultra was a failure you know mind war is you know the real thing when of course as thomas brought up earlier you know mk ultra was outright described as having a goal not just to go manipulate individuals minds but to change entire societies to you know practice mind control on a mass scale so it's not really all that different from mk ultra's goals and then funny enough too way back, you know, there was this blog called Hoaxed Research, which was by these, you know, anti 
I mean, people who are against the Hampstead, you know, child abuse case allegations out in Britain, which uh, there are definitely questions about the legitimacy of that, but it's basically just become a haven for people who oppose any kind of child abuse, you know, ritual abuse case to just, you know, congreg congregate there. And at one point there's this person, this individual named like Satanic Views. I think Satanic Views is in fact their website as well, if, if you look it up. But this person actually said, oh yeah, I was friends with Aquino and he was part of MK Ultra." So someone who's apparently directly from Aquino's inner circle was going against Aquino himself and confirming that he was indeed part of this. But Aquino, for all of the seemingly crazy things he was willing to talk about, would obviously still not touch the things that really get to the core of the worst allegations about him, which again is classic disinformation. You're gonna go to the sensational stuff like Flat Earth and you know, even 9-11, but you're not going to touch the pedophile ring issue with the 10-foot pole. Right, and it's kind of reminiscent too of how, uh, you know, when, when uh, Stephen, when you mentioned how Aquino comes out for all of these things, you know, shortly before his death, it reminds me too of E. Howard Hunt coming out with a total kind of limited hangout uh, slash disinformation uh, with respect to the JFK case uh, shortly before his death, uh, acknowledging a conspiracy, but really effectively externalizing that conspiracy by attributing it to a uh, jealous husband within the CIA and Johnson and just this, uh, you know, kind of uh, little group of crooks, this little gang of uh, criminals inside the community, as opposed to the more systemic uh, complicity that that is really in, in the evidence, uh, you know, but uh, so that I think that's kind of a almost a, a part of the contract that these guys go through, you know, that they that uh, they're they're uh, disinfo they're dis they're psychological warfare lifers basically you know and on their way out it's it's you know why not uh, just muddy the waters even further you know it's been their life's work why why change it now well said um, Sam uh, do you have any uh, closing thoughts that you want to give us there before we sign off um not, not really i mean i couldn't agree more with everything thomas and george said i think he you know uh he spent his life uh, involved in, in psychological warfare and, and did it till the day he died um i just want to point out you know some some recent manifestations of this esoteric nazism which is you know really um, potentially scary or is i mean one one is the order of the nine angles which is a terrorist groups, sat satanic occult group, um, they promote human sacrifice, Nazism, fascism, um, and, you know, they've been involved in uh, all kinds of infiltration and, and, and terrorist plots. Um, there was a recent story where one U.S. soldier was indicted for plotting an attack on his own unit, and he was leaking info to the 09A, as they're called. And so this group, which directly stems from the ceremony of the nine angles, you know, that, that Aquino developed back in the 70s. And then um, another one is the Adam Waffen. And I think these groups are, are you know, certainly paying homage to, to the kind of left-hand path cultism that, that Aquino was really responsible for, um, much more so than Levea. I, th I think it, Aquino, you know, given his military history and the kind of horrendous things he did in Vietnam, was um, more devoted, shall we say, to <laughs> to left-hand path activities. And, and these groups, who are you know very direct extensions of, of his ideology, speak to that. So, just want to point that out. Watch out for these groups. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, I think this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, and I do think we've uh, covered a lot of the uh, more obscure aspects of uh, Colonel Aquino's life that uh, you don't normally hear addressed. So hopefully mission accomplished. Hope all of you guys listening have enjoyed this as well, and um, you know, we'll take away a lot of information from this, and we'll contemplate uh, some of the aspects of Aquino's life that uh, maybe you haven't before. As always, I thank you guys for listening. And on that note, good night and good luck to you all.